and gentlemen, it's time for the What's Up webcast, webcast on its stream. And here is your host, Kevin Lagore. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher. Welcome to the What's Up webcast, uh, webcast-a-thon extreme. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you've never joined us here on the What's Up webcast-a-thon, my name is Kevin Lagore. Uh, I'm the product specialist and host of the What's Up webcast. And we check in on what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment, to helpful tips and tricks. And of course, the last Friday of the month, we talk about what's up in the nighttime sky. Uh, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. We have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. Well, today is a very, very special episode of the What's Up webcast. That's the Webcast-a-thon Extreme. It's also our 99th episode. So thanks for everyone who's joining us today. And thank you for all of you who've been along with us for the ride. Um, if you like what you see here, please leave a like down below um, or subscribe to the channel. We really appreciate it. Uh, first things off really quick. Um, we do have a limited edition shirt uh, that is out for today only. Um, we'll get that up on the screen here real quick. Uh, for today's webcast-a-thon. It's a special edition shirt that'll only be available today through our Threadless store. Um, and you can go online and buy one of those and check that out um, if you wanna be at the link is right there in the chat. If you wanna check those out, um, go ahead and check it out. It's uh, We've been working on that, but yeah, that is a special edition shirt. There's also hoodies and a bunch of other cool stuff that is just for today only uh, for the What's Up webcast-a-thon. So that'll be... Uh, really, really awesome thing to have um, because once they are done, once today is done, we're not making any more. So that's it. So get your, uh, we did do it kind of like a tour t-shirt hoodie kind of thing. So, um, you know, go over there and check that out. That's at the Skywatcher Threadless shop. Um, link is in the description or is in the chat right there. Go ahead and check that out. Now, today is a very, very, very busy day. Uh, normally, the What's Up webcast is a one-hour live uh, stream where we're talking all things astronomy. Well, today, we're doing this all day. We're going to 6 p.m. Pacific, and we're covering a lot of stuff today. So thanks for being with us. Um, this will be saved later, so if you need to go back and watch it, uh, awesome. Go back and watch it. Uh, just like all of our other webcasts that will be recorded, it just might be a little long. Um, we'll have to look at uh, organizing that so you can actually go in and find things easier. Uh, but we'll talk about that once things are done. Now, there's a ton of stuff that's got to go on today. Um, and I want to go through some of the details there. Um, first off, uh, I want to talk about today's uh, schedule uh, first. Uh, and I think we can get that up on the screen here really quick. Uh, we'll get the schedule going because inside uh, some of the things that we're going to be doing today, we're also going to be doing uh, giveaways um, inside of the panels uh, that we're going to talk about here. So we got to cover some of the rules and topics of that and how that's going to work. Uh, but first, I want to actually break into the schedule. Uh, so give us just a second while we get that up on the screen. Um, Real quick, while everyone's hanging out, uh, big shout out to all of our team. We've got uh, Jeff Simon, our director. We've got Jared Dorsky. I think I said that right, Jared. Hopefully that was right. Uh, Donkersley. Donkersley. I'm sorry. Um, 
He's laughing at me on the screen. Um, and of course, uh, Simon Tang is hanging out with us in the back, controlling everything. He's the mastermind behind all of that. So today is much more complicated because there's a lot more stuff going on. Um, it's the first time we've ever done anything this complicated. Uh, but yeah, thanks for uh, hanging out with us. Um, are we going to get the schedule up on the screen for that? Okay, cool. Um, so you guys should be seeing the schedule here uh, coming up. Uh, so today, uh, there's the schedule right there. Of course, we've got our intro that we're doing right now. Uh, now, right after this live intro, we're going into our pre-recorded sections. Uh, we have 10 different vendors, organizations, and observatories uh, that have been pre uh recorded mainly because of how complex it would be able to do that live um we have planetary society right after this uh, these are like i said pre-recorded 20 minute segments um so if there's someone that you want to see this is the breakdown for today this is all in pacific time uh so first up right after this we have the planetary society and the mount lemon sky center right after that that will be pre-recorded then after that, at 11 a.m. Pacific is our first astronomy panel or our first panel. Now, the panels are live, one hour live panels. So you can hang out with us there. We have all kinds of awesome people that are going to be in the panels. Um, so we have astronomy 101 panel at 11 o'clock. Uh, there it is right there, a little bit bigger on the screen. Uh, that will be with Stephen Ramsden of the Charlie Bates Solar Astronomy Project. We have Fiona Morris and uh, Helena. I, I'm sorry, Helena. I don't remember your last name. I'm terrible with names. Um, but those are some of our ambassadors that are hanging out with us. Um, and then right after that panel, we have our, we go back into our next set of pre-recorded sessions. That's Skies Away Remote Observatories, Fujifilm, uh, Helena Cochran, I'm sorry. Uh, there we go. I hope she forgives me for that. Uh, so right after the Astronomy 101 panel, we've got Skies Away Remote Observatories, Fujifilm, and Daystar Filters. That'll be our next pre-recorded sessions. Um, and then right after that, we go back into our social media panel at 1 p.m. Pacific with Nico Carver, Trevor Jones, and uh, Kalpana Pot of Griffith Observatory. Nico, of course, is from Nebula Photos and Trevor, who's hanging out in the chat as well, is from Astro Backyard. I'm pretty sure most of you know who those guys are. Uh, we're going to be talking about how social media affects astronomy with those ones. So thanks for them hanging out. Then after that panel, we're going to Lowell Observatory, then Stellar View, and then Los Mondi. And then right after that, it's going to be a big, big, big packed day. We have the optics panel with legendary optician Mike Lockwood, um, who's a master at large fast mirrors. And then Vic Maris from Stellar View will be joining us for our optics panel. And then that will lead into Prima Lucha Labs and Star Arizona for our final two pre-recorded sessions. And then starting off our final panel um, is our imaging panel with uh, world-class imagers, uh, Richard Wright, Ron Brecher, and Bob Moore. Uh, Bob Moore is also uh, the lead for the NIAC convention um, for imaging. So they'll be all joining us this afternoon. And then we're gonna wrap that up. And then tonight, because I won't be talking enough today, um, we will have our virtual star party over at the Focus Astronomy YouTube channel. You can join me over there. That takes place at 8 p.m. Pacific tonight where you can go hang out with us and we can explore the nighttime sky um, with that live. So it's gonna be really freaking busy today. So 
I will try to be able to talk by the end of the day. Um, and then of course the entire time we'll have the live chat up. I'm sure we'll have people bouncing in and out. I'll try to be in there. I'm under focus astronomy just so I don't mess anything up. Uh, hi everyone. There I am. So I'll try to be floating around in there as well as the rest of our team will kind of be bouncing in and out, uh, uh, answering any questions that you might have. Now, regarding the live panels, we're doing giveaways today. And I want to tell you how that's all going to work because it's very specific on how this is going to work. And I'm sure you'd like to get some free stuff. Um, so first off, let's talk about what we're giving away, especially because you can't get anything nowadays. Um, uh, the first three prizes we're going to be giving away are a Skywatcher Star Adventurer Pro Pack. Now, I would like to let people know that these are the original pro packs, not the two I models. So if you get it, I don't want you calling up being like, it's not the new one. It's you're welcome. Um, so that's a pro pack. Um, you've got all that stuff in there. You've got the mount, you've got the EQ base, you've got the counterweight bar and the, uh, uh, you get everything. It's, you know, anyway. So we're giving away three of those today um, for the first three panels. And then the last panel at the, the imaging panel prize is the grand prize. That is an AZ EQ5 go-to mount. Um, if you wanna know how much all that is, you can go online and figure out how much all that is. Cause I don't remember the prices anyway, cause everything's constantly changing, but this gives you an opportunity to get in there and win some free stuff. Um, however, I've gotta go over the rules on how this is gonna work. Uh, first off, you can only win a prize once during the webcast, but you can enter each giveaway. Uh, what that means is you cannot win all the giveaways and receive two or more prizes. Uh, second up, giveaway is open to legal residents of the United States of America and Canada. Um, I'm sorry if you're international, it just didn't work out this time for that. Maybe next year, we'll talk about it, but for now, uh, the giveaways are only open uh, to legal residents of the United States of America and Canada. Second, uh, check the terms and conditions for more information. The links can be found in the description as well as the chat. We'll get that up real quick uh, for you guys to see. Um, and the way this is going to work is how do I enter? So the way you're going to enter is you're going to email info at skywatcherusa.com. And for each giveaway, we're going to give you a code word that you have to send as the title of the email. Um, and that'll be given out at the beginning of each of the panels. Each panel is going to have its own code word. Type an email with your information uh, in that email. I believe it's the name and... Uh, name, where you're at, uh, phone number, just so we can get in touch with you. Um, so we'll do all of that. So if you could send that in an email, um, as well as your mailing address, uh, that would be uh, the great way to get in touch with you. Um, so yeah, you need to email info at skywatcherusa.com. The email title has to be the code word that we're going to give out at the beginning of each panel. Each panel has its own funny code word. So be prepared for that. 
At the end of today, during our closing remarks, we will start a live number generator. We're going to put everybody in there um, on a big list. Everyone's name is going to get a number. We'll put that in a number generator so it's fair. And then we'll pull the number. And hopefully at that point, I'll be able to get whoever wins name up there. But you can only win one prize. So if you won one prize and for whatever reason you get pulled in another one, sorry, you already won something. You can't win multiple things. Um, but yeah, we will have all four panels are going to have their own code word. And then at the end of the day, we will pull the name from the hat and see who gets what. Um, we do have these prizes stowed away already. So it doesn't mean you just get added to a list and you have to wait for months for you to get your stuff. No, we actually have it ready to go. Um, once we have your information and you've been confirmed the winner, we will get that ready and shipped out to you. So uh, that's how today's uh, stuff is going to work. Um, it should be really fun and exciting. Uh, these panels that I've been talking about, they are live. We haven't. So it'll be exciting to have them on and talk shop with astronomy. And it's it's going to be awesome. Um, can non-USA people enter the giveaway was a question. Uh, unfortunately, at this time, it is only open to legal residents of the US, uh, the United States of America, and Canada. I Unfortunately, this time around, we haven't been able to do it internationally. Maybe if we do this next year, we'll try to advance that a little bit more. Um, but if you have any questions about what's going to go on today, now's the time. If you want to throw that out there, um, we can try to answer any final questions that you guys have. Um, but again, right after this section, because um, this is live. Hi, you saw me screw up a number of times, so it's live. Um, Right after this, we're going to jump into our first section of pre-recorded sessions. That's going to be the Planetary Society, uh, followed by Mount Lemon Sky Center. Um, right after that, around 11 a.m. Pacific, um, we're going to start our first panel where we're going to give away the first uh, code word for you to email in uh, if you want to get involved in the uh, giveaways. That panel is going to go for an hour. Uh, then right after that, about 12 o'clock Pacific time, we're going to jump into our second pre-recorded sessions uh, with Skies Away Remote Observatory, Fuji Film, and Daystar Filters. Uh, that'll put it about an hour. And then right around 1 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, we're going to start our social media panel. We're going to do the second uh, giveaway code word. And then we'll start that one hour live panel. That will then end. And then at 2 p.m. Pacific, we're going to start our, our second, or I'm sorry, our third session of pre records, which will be Lowell Observatory, Stellar View. Stellar View is announcing some new stuff in that video. So if you want to know more information about Stellar View's new products, uh, they are going to be showing some new products in that video. Um, and then we have Los Mondi. Uh, and then right after that, 3 p.m. Pacific, we will start our optics panel. And then at that point, uh, we will give away the third code word for you to enter the giveaways. And then we'll sit down with Mike Lockwood and Vic Maris talking optics. That's going to be an hour long. Um, that's going to be a really cool session. Um, these are two world-class opticians. We have one that works exclusively on refractors. 
the other that works exclusively on large aperture fast mirrors. So it'll be a very interesting conversation uh, to talk about, you know, glass types, Strel, optical figure from two different uh, opticians. Um, so that'll be a one hour session. And then right after that at 4 p.m. Pacific, we've got Prima Lucha Labs, uh, which those guys are a hoot to talk to. Um, they're awesome. Uh, so 4 p.m., we've got Prima Lucha Labs and we got our friends at Star Arizona. And then right around 4.40, I think is the last one, we have our imaging panel and we have world-class imagers joining us in there. Um, we will do the last uh, giveaway uh, code word for that AZEQ5. That's a, I don't even know. What are the, I, maybe you guys could tell me in the chat. Those are like 1500 bucks at this point. So um, it's ready to go. Brand new AZEQ5. It's a great map to get started in astrophotography with. And finally, after that panel, um, we'll go into closing remarks. That is where we're going to start pulling names from the hat, figuratively. Um, we're actually just going to put your name in a code generator and it'll pop up a number. Um, then we'll start giving away the prizes. And then at six o'clock Pacific, we'll wrap this whole thing up. And then finally, as if I haven't done enough lately, um, at 8 p.m. Pacific, you can come back to the Focus Astronomy YouTube channel and join me for the virtual star party that we're going to be doing from Skies Away Remote Observatory. That's got our big six inch Esprit 150, um, Bortal 2 Skies, ZWO 6200 camera, and a whole slew of filters. So we'll be going off um, digging into the nighttime sky uh, tonight, and that'll be over at the Focus Astronomy YouTube channel. Uh, this evening. The link is already over there. You can wander over there and check it out, um, but it should be good to go. So it's going to be a fun day. I gladly hanging out with all of you guys. Um, I will definitely be seeing you guys in the chats and uh, it's going to be uh, great this, uh, this whole day. And of course, this evening, we're going to go galaxy hunting. It's galaxy season. Got some nebulas that we're going to be checking out. And um, it's going to be an absolutely awesome day. And hopefully some of you walk away with some free stuff by the end of today. See you guys in the chat. Bye. Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome back to the Skywatcher What's Up webcast, webcast-a-thon extreme um, broadcast. Um, I am hanging out now with our friends from the Planetary Society. We have Jennifer Vaughn and Matthew Kaplan. Uh, they're joining us uh, for this session. Uh, so thank you guys for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great pleasure. Um, I have known about the Planetary Society for a long time, um, and I'm sure a lot of people watching um, do as well. But um, for those who don't know, I didn't know if one of you or both of you could kind of explain what the Planetary Society is, because what you guys do is immense. I mean, you guys cover <laughs> a lot of, I would say ground, but we're talking about space. So you cover a lot of space, but I didn't know if you could kind of go over what the Planetary Society is really about. 
Yeah, with, we love to talk about that. <laughs> so you chose the right people for that question. Um, when I start and then Matt, when I'm done, just feel free to jump in and add more. So uh, the Planetary Society connects people with space exploration. That's what we're all about. So we were founded in 1980. So we've been around for quite a while uh, for the sole purpose of proving that there is public interest in planetary exploration. At the time, our founders, Carl Sagan, Bruce Murray, and Lewis Friedman all knew kind of anecdotally there was a lot of interest in space exploration. The Voyagers had just started sending back um, great imagery and data from their destinations. We just had the success from the Viking landings. There was a lot of public uh, just enthusiasm about what we were learning. At the same time, government funding, especially in the U.S., so we were looking at the U.S. at that time, was was turning into practically nothing for planetary mm. exploration. And so to help really bolster the argument that there is a very large audience and appetite for more understanding about our solar system and our place in space, they created the planetary study through its sheer existence is to prove that people care. People care so much, they're going to join an organization. People care so much, they're going to donate their time, their, their interests, their skills, their money to support future uh, exploration as well. And so that was that was where we got started. And, and pretty much right away in those first few years, we, we looked at how do we involve the public? So how do we, now that we have the public coming together, we had uh, roughly 100,000 people wanted to join the ranks like right away, a big swell of interest. But now that we have people, how do we really use these people to advance space? So that that's really what it is, is activating the public to, to make meaningful changes in space exploration. So our, our mission is to empower the world's citizens to advance space science and exploration. And we do that through a number of ways. We do that through public education, through activities like this, through outreach, through getting the word out there and to get more people involved and more enthusiastic about what we're learning about space and what there's still yet to explore and discover. We do that through advocacy, so getting people to have a, a direct relationship with decision makers and, and, and powers out there to, to help ensure that there is future high-level investment going on in space exploration. We also do that through um, seed funding technologies, so identifying where there are new technologies, new research that needs seed funding to get started. And then ideally, it will just take off and, and become its own entity over time. But we can actually kickstart that process. And we do that through crowdfunding. So bringing the public together to say, here's a great idea that needs some funding support. Do you want to contribute to that? Do you want to be part of it? And we have some great success stories there. And the one that's best known right now is our light sail spacecraft uh, of, that's still operating today. So two years later, almost two years later, um, we're still flying in, in Earth orbit. Uh, and the last, thing, the, the last thing we do is we really try to collaborate with all of the other like-minded groups out there that are trying to get people more closely associated with space exploration. So in the end, we'd like to say that we educate, advocate, innovate, and collaborate. Nice. Did you want to elaborate on that, Matt? <laughs> I don't really need to. I mean, uh, you, you just heard it from the source, the authority. She is our COO. I'm just the radio guy, radio and podcast guy. Uh, I love what our, our top boss, the CEO, Bill Nye, says. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about sharing the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy 
of space and, and space science and space exploration. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody feels that PB&J more than, uh, than Bill does, but it's an amazing group. Uh, Jennifer and I have both been there for a pretty long time. Uh, and we go back through um, to that original generation, uh, the, the original founders of the society. Sadly, I got there after we'd lost Carl Sagan. But, uh, you know, Lou Friedman, Bruce Murray, they were very much a, a part of the organization. Lou is still around, of course, and uh, uh, drops by. Uh, it, it, we have grown so much, and it's become such a, a, a powerful uh, influence uh, an expression of how so many of us feel about all this stuff that Jennifer talked about. Um, the radio show started as a public radio show now, of course, a podcast as well. We'll hit our 20th anniversary in November wow. of this year. Uh, but we have so many wonderful channels now. Our social media channels are just exploding across Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and the magazine, which Jennifer used to be in charge of, uh, was one of your first jobs, right, Jennifer? Um, the, the Planetary Report, still a joy, uh, goes to our members in print every quarter, but it's now available for free online to absolutely everybody at planetary.org, which is where you, know, you can check out everything that we do, all of this great stuff Jen talked about. Awesome. Yeah, that's kind of, a, in my mind, the vision of what planetary society actually is, is I think there's a lot of people out there who want to get involved with space or astronomy or something of that matter. And it always seems like it's something that is a little out of reach, but with a little bit of digging and organizations like planetary society, it kind of gives people a proverbial HQ, if you will, to be like, I want to be involved. Maybe I, maybe I don't work for NASA or whatever, but it, it gives somebody a route to where it's like, I can be involved with the exploration of space, even if it's a little thing. And I think that really does give people kind of a, a seed, if you will, to feel like I belong to something bigger than myself. And now I can expand that to whatever your capability is to the rest of the world. But you guys kind of give them, uh, you know, like a soapbox to finally get out there and you know, be like, this is what we are at this point. And I think that's really cool that, and it's hard to get an organization like that going. Um, but now that you guys have been around and you're rooted and you have some still big shoes in the, you know, driving the, the car there, um, it's, it's pretty cool what you guys do. And then of course the light sail is just another example of like, this is what we can do when we actually work together to make something big happen. So, um, exactly. I hope people are familiar with light sail. I mean, Jennifer can tell you more, but I, I just, I'm still thrilled. I can't, I'm so amazed that it's still, I mean, it might be over my head right now. Yeah. If, if you exactly. can tell some people, I mean, I'm familiar with, I remember when you guys were talking about it. Um, and then <laughs> we've course, been talking about it for a long time, yeah, but yeah. Uh, when it was like, a thought and now it's like a real yeah. thing um but if you could tell people about light sale yeah yeah again we can kind of share this too because i think we have different different perspectives and stories on this project um so 
what what you were saying uh, just prior to this about the working together, it, it can show you, you know, the, the large things we can accomplish. And to me, that's maybe the number one takeaway for this mission. So in short, this is a solar sail mission. So this is using photons uh, as propulsion in a very small spacecraft. And uh, the Planetary Society uh, conceived, built, tested, launched and has been flying now operating this solar sail spacecraft for almost two years. Um, it was a 20 year project because it had many twists and turns as it went. So the idea of the Planetary Society having an active role in, in solar sailing is a 20 year story. Light sail in particular, that particular mission is a 10 year story. And uh, it, took, it took just tremendous long-term commitment from all of our supporters of being able to envision an outcome that was going to be difficult to achieve and was going to take a lot of time and not surprisingly a lot of money so in the end it was a seven million dollar project that has a little bit of a trickle effect now because it still exists but nothing at that scale <laughs> so um seven million dollar project just to, to get it off earth and um you know that kind of an example in the wild now of saying that was funded entirely by individuals who thought that this was a great idea. Um, that's a stunning example of the potential of a large group of people coming together with maybe small resources and having those small resources really accumulate over time and and do something great like that. So one of the one of the big takeaways for me is always the 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 vision of what comes next, like what. What could crowd funds actually achieve in space? This was just the first example and an excellent example at that. Um, anyway, so that's my big takeaway for kind of the meaning behind it. But I know I didn't really say that much about solar sailing or about light sail directly. So maybe I'll just hand that over to Matt at this point, And you can say a little bit more about that. I, it's just thrilling. Uh, I, I mean, it's one of the most exciting nights it was actually very early in the morning of my life was um, when we were at the cape and we watched a falcon heavy carry our little light sail and a bunch of other payloads we weren't the main one up into uh, not low earth orbit but medium earth orbit because we had to get it up above more of the atmosphere than you would still run into at low earth orbit because it's a sail and we can't have too many atoms running into it because we're trying to catch photons um, and it was just, it was so exciting. And then not long after that, to be up at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in central California, when we actually saw the, the wings, the sails unfurl, God was, Jennifer was there too, of course. I mean, I'm not an engineer or a scientist. I just talk to them for a living, but to be able to hang around, to be a part of a project like that, that inspired millions of people around the world. I mean, right now our, our, best model of light sail is at the Smithsonian mm -hmm. on display. Uh, and, you know, it just thrills people. I mean, we hear from these people all the time about light sail and, you know, also about all the other stuff that we do. So it's just, it's so cool to know that it's still over our heads, proving that we can do controlled flight in orbit using no rocket engines, no other thrust other than light from the sun. So, you know, what could be more exciting? I think it sets kind of a big example, though, beyond just 
and I know you guys probably have thought about this because I, I know you forward think like that, but um, what kind of statement a project like that actually makes, especially in today's world where, you know, you turn on the news and it's just disaster all the time. So for for something like that, it's like, this is what we can do if we actually like work as a team, as people, we can actually do, you know, what we're going to do. And it's a, it's a massive, you know, thing to be like, we did that and it's still there. So, um, you know, kudos to the planetary society for doing that. But, um, you know, another, it's just kind of a badge of honor at that point to show the world that, you know, when people do work together, there's a lot of positive things that can come from that. So, this is um, what Bill Nye, once again, he says, space brings us together. Mm-hmm. He's right. We all believe this. And boy, do we all right now be- need to believe in something that is pure hope, pure aspiration and accomplishment uh, that applies around the world. Um, uh, you know, no borders visible from space, right? Yeah. Oh, cliche. Uh, 30% of the uh, planetary radio audience is outside the United States. And that's something that we're very proud of. Um, we think that we provide that that message of hope by, by looking outward. And you kind of, I mean, obviously Carl Sagan being one of the founders, you know, Pale Blue Dot is like the epitome of all of that. Um, it will never be done better than that, but it's, that next step further is like, okay, we have to respect the pale blue dot and all this great stuff, but like light sail and what you guys do, it's like, it's one thing to say it's the next step to be, how do we actually make that effort possible? And obviously planetary society does that. I think in the best ways you, you can, where you are giving an avenue or a place for people to make that statement now a reality to some extent. Yeah, that's, that's our that's our objective. So we we try, we work at that every single day of how are we going to meaningful meaningfully involve all people in space. What can we what can we do as an organization to make sure that we are bringing together the right resources to actually make a difference? And you know, I use the word resources very broadly here because it could be uh, really just the, the bringing together the passion, bringing together the excitement, uh, whatever that is. Um, but really turning that into something that is going to have a meaningful effect in long-term exploration. And sometimes, you know, in space, it's always risky. So sometimes you put a lot of effort in something that doesn't really work the way you think it's going to. Um, but, but you know, like with all anyone who's working in space, you're always trying to, to get the, the maximum value out of the efforts that you're putting in. Well, you know, where when it comes to space, it, I know a lot of people, it's like, oh, we've been to space. It's like, we're at the the shallows of a monsterly deep ocean at this point and it's what we're doing now as a species is incredible but now you have the step of like you look at what james webb just unlocked essentially and who knows what's going to come from that it's like we're getting a little bit deeper at putting our our toe out there but it's like um it's cool that planetary society encompasses all that it gives a place for people to be a part of that expansion and growth 
And I'd be curious to see what you guys do next. Tell me. <laughs> I, I mean, there's something very exciting that was just happened a couple of weeks ago, which Jennifer would also be the best person to talk about. And it's great evidence of what she was saying about how we try to encourage um, through not just words of encouragement, but dollars, um, uh, projects that might not be able to get underway if it weren't for uh, uh, our support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just announced uh, our first STEP grant winners last week. Nice. And so STEP stands for Science and Technology Empowered by the People, or by the Public, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, it's, it's an ongoing grant program now that's open internationally. And it will be every other year, but because we're kind of making up for some COVID time here, we're going to do two rounds in a row. So we just we just awarded the first round. We're going to have another opening coming up again in 22. And what we're looking for are projects that can be either technology projects, science research studies, um, uh, other ways of trying to get to advancing our core enterprises. And so for the planetary study, our core enterprises, that means what we do, what we really focus on, is planetary exploration, not surprisingly with our name and all, uh, the search for life in the universe, and planetary defense, so protecting Earth from dangerous asteroids and comets. So uh, for those people who have projects like new ideas, new, new projects they want to get started that really fall into those categories and could use some seed funding to get started, then our step grant program is a great place to, to start there. So our first two projects, we have one that is a crowd um, crowdsourced activity. So it's a, it's a citizen science activity tied to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So there's gonna be a fun outreach opportunity here for individuals who care about this topic and wanna get involved to actually have an active citizen science role in it. And we also have a new study about uh, near-Earth asteroids and um, kind of the, the effects on the asteroid characteristics. So it's a, it's a long-term study. Um, both we're really excited about. This new grant program is really designed to collect a lot of great ideas from all over the world and, and kind of help us find new opportunities for further investment as well. So while the first round of grants is... Um, depending on your your scale, maybe kind of on the smaller side, tens of thousands of dollars versus millions of dollars. Um, over time, there might be some other projects too that there have they have other phases and develop over time, and we might be able to help them find other funding to to move forward with as well. So um, it's a very very exciting new new project or new program of ours that is just starting to take off. Awesome. Well. We're actually out of time on our block here. Um, thank you guys for hanging out. I hope we can get you on to like our one hour webcast at some point because I know this chat could go on forever um, once you get people excited about a certain topic. Um, but thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, and I, hopefully we can have you on um, at a later date. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's a pleasure. And uh, keep making great telescopes. Awesome. Uh, well, stay tuned, guys. We're going to have another session coming up next. Uh, thank you very much to the Planetary Society for joining us. And we will take uh, see you guys here shortly. See ya.
Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher. Welcome to our next session of the What's Up Webcast Webcastathon Extreme broadcast. Um, I'm here with my good friend Alan Strauss of the Mount Lemmon Sky Center from the University of Arizona. Um, hey Alan, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, looking forward to it. You didn't tell me it was extreme though. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot, a lot of something to say. That's for sure. So. Um, so you're the director of Mount Lemmon Sky Center, and for those of you watching who might not know, uh, Alan, I kind of want to just hand it off to you. If you could tell people who might not know what you guys are, what the Sky Center actually is. Yeah, it's so, really unique, actually. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the, the Sky Center is uh, essentially the outreach uh, and public education program of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Arizona, based out of the Mount Lemmon Observatory. So we, the Sky Center is, is actually not a place, it's a program. Mm -hmm. People confuse that quite a bit, which is good for us. Um, but it's actually a 25-acre site at the summit of Mount Lemmon. There's multiple research telescopes and projects going on. And so what we do is we bring people up to the summit of the mountain, and we have a, a immersive uh, outreach experience. So it's a five-hour program. We do a lot of things in the daytime. We show people stars through the telescope, which most of the time they don't even consider that they could see a bright star in the daytime. If there's any planets up, we watch sunset together from the summit of the mountain. We have a light dinner. Uh, we'll do a talk often on kind of size and scale of the solar system or exciting topics that are uh, current. Uh, as you can imagine, for instance, James Webb Space Telescope has, mm -hmm. has been quite a, a discussion lately. And then uh, once it's dark, we spend a couple hours observing through our uh, 0.8 meter, 0.6 meter, so 32 inch and 24 inch telescopes at the summit of the mountain. Uh, and it, it's a very immersive experience. So we, we might only get through 8, 10, 12 objects a night, uh, sometimes more. It depends on the interest level of, of folks, but it's a very in-depth experience. And so people leave really having a, a greater understanding that, that you know, science matters, right? That, and that astronomy is not something that's inaccessible. It's just a matter of curiosity and, and making observations through the telescope and then asking questions. And that, you know, we can understand that stuff. And it's just a matter of, of how far we want to take that. For some people, it's all the way to their PhD and beyond. And for others, it's, you know, buying a 80 millimeter Skywatcher and setting it up in their backyard for the next 10 years. And, and that's it. So. I don't know. I could go on all day about this, so I, I don't want to overwhelm. Yeah, no. The it's it's kind of a cool um, experience because you know most of there's a lot of facilities around the country that offer different outreach experiences and stuff like that. But what I think makes your guys is unique is the fact that you're up there for, like you said, you you go up there, you you do sunset. How tall is the the summit up there? So it's about ninety, just shy of ninety two hundred feet. So it's a, it's a solid mile and a half above the valley floor. Yeah, so you're you're up there, and then it you kind of it's such a unique perspective to to do that from that elevate, and then you guys obviously do dinner, um, and then you have you know a couple hours on you know major telescopes at that, and um, the thirty two that you guys have up there is pretty much one of the largest outreach instruments in the state, I think, that you can look through at this point. Yeah. I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, I think a couple, maybe 40 inches out there. But it's the nice thing about this telescope, well, there's many nice things, but one is that it's actually 100% dedicated to public access. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, we do other things with it as well. In addition to these public observing programs, uh, we, for instance, have the ability to um, sell time remotely on it. So uh, if someone wanted to do astrophotography, they can purchase time on the telescope, we put the camera on there, and then they can collect data and create very high resolution images uh, from the comfort of their home and from anywhere in the world, right? So we've had a number of customers, say, from the east, far east, where it's the middle of the day, you know, and they're, they're sitting in their cubicle, not telling their boss that they're on the side collecting data on some object. Um, so that's neat. And then the other thing is, is that uh, we can do virtual star parties, right? This was something we could have done for a long time, right? But COVID pushed, pushed us in that direction. So we have people that will um, uh, request a virtual star party. And what we do is, again, we put the camera on, and then using software that integrates the images, it'll slowly build up an image over a minute or two. And people see something that's pretty similar to what they would see at the eyepieces, right? So not this pretty, pretty beautiful blue nebula behind me, right? But they see it in grayscale, just like the camera does. Sure. And that's been a, a pretty popular thing. So it's, it's a very unique location. It's a very unique telescope in that we can use it both for imaging and for and so yeah, you know, uh, these things up there, we I, I often think of as outreach, right? That's kind of what we call this stuff, it's yeah. outreach, and, and it's a lot of fun. But we also do formal uh, K-12 education programs. So we have schools that come and stay at the mountain for one to four days, depending on the age of, of the students, um, and take advantage not only of the space sciences that exist there, but of all of the natural sciences on the mountain. We are in a pretty unique place uh, ecologically, and, and students really get to connect with that and, and see the interrelationships, right, of all these things, right, how the stars are connected to life on Earth and to, to soils and waters and, and all of this. So it's, I often say I've got the best job on Earth. Like, like you, we, we met as amateur astronomers, and I just married a good hobby with them. Yep. some administrative experience. No, it, it all works. And that's kind of the cool thing about the observatory or – and I think it's cool that you guys take advantage of that because I think there's few observatories that do is most observatories are on very remote mountaintops and there's, it's not just, you know, some Island in the sky. Um, but I mean, you have to think about the, the biological and geographical, you know, footprints that are around the observatory as well. And Mount Lemmon's pretty unique in the fact that you've got forests and, yeah. you know pretty dense forests and you know you've got major season shifts up there and all kinds of stuff so it's a pretty unique place to visit um and then six so, inches of snow two days ago oh wow um <laughs> if you know being from arizona i'm obviously well aware of it and i think a lot of people are aware of you know the observatories around the state here but if someone was coming in from out of state or even a different country and they wanted to make a trip up to the mountain um what are some things you would tell people to consider um before they come out for a, a viewing gotcha well for our program make your reservation early because in the uh, nicer months of the year we do tend to sell out uh, well well in advance months in advance one to two months so that's number one but the second thing is, is really just to give yourself time because it is an amazing drive. It's uh, 25 miles approximately from the base of the mountain to the observatory. And you go through multiple different uh, biological zones. They, they say it's like driving from the Sonoran Desert to an alpine forest in 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you want to give yourself time to stop and get out and take pictures and, and do all of those things. Um, of course, it's much colder at the top. People often underestimate that. And when the sun goes down, it can often be 20 to 30 degrees colder than it was uh, in the valley in the daytime. Um, but really, just to come with a sense of, of wonder and curiosity, mm-hmm. be ready to, to ask questions and, and just fully engage. And I think that the you know, it's the enthusiasm and excitement of our staff that is infectious. And so it, people, yeah. people come ready for that. Uh, and I don't know if this is answering your question, but uh, but th- those are the things I would say, you know, be ready for. And, you know, and certainly there's other really good stuff to do in and around uh, Tucson related to space sciences. You know, the uh, university has this Richard F. Karras mirror lab where we fabricate the largest mirrors in the world by far. And so right now they're they're working on the latter half of the mirrors for the giant Magellan telescope, and these mirrors are uh, over eight meters in diameter each, right? So like 25 feet across, um, huge things. Uh, right now we're not doing public tours because we're on the tail end of COVID, uh, and we're obviously want to keep everyone safe in that lab because uh, production is a 24-hour a day uh, process. And so, yeah. Um, but it, we do anticipate that by the end of the summer um, we should be opening. Um, and then there's many things on the university campus, which is about an hour and a half from the, the summit of the mountain. Um, there's a planetarium and science center. The uh, Kuiper Space Sciences Building has some really nice things that can be seen in there, named, of course, after Gerard Kuiper, um, who built many of the telescopes in the Catalina Mountains uh, in preparation for the Apollo moon landings. So mm-hmm. uh, There's a very rich history um, at the university. You can see the original dome uh, that was built in the around World War I on campus. So there's there's some pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, Tucson's got all kinds of stuff. And, you know, Mount Lemmon is only one of the major observatory sites not right. far. You know, I mean, you have Kitt Peak. I'm not sure what they're doing currently right now, but, um, and various others. But um, Mount Lemmon seems to be one of the most accessible um, to really get up there and, you know, have a, a true astronomical experience um, with that. Yeah. Is the observatory something you can do visit during the day or is it you have to make reservations? And Not that? generally. It's a nighttime experience. We do, if a group wants to come, we will do daytime tours. Of the okay, good to know. We'll talk, talk about the history, you know, whatever we can show in the daytime, a star or Venus, something like that, right? Uh, we'll throw up a solar telescope. So we, we do do that if it's if it's a small group. Um, and then but, you do have kind of your store visitor center, which is actually at the base of the mountain now. You guys have that correct. new facility. Correct, on the way up, yes. Yeah. In fact, we could even sell you a Skywatcher telescope. If you want. Yes. Yeah. But definitely, it's uh, and that's been a new thing for us, to have kind of a base camp close by. Um, we opened it just before COVID, so I feel like we're still in the grand opening phase. Yeah, I remember yeah. we were trying to do that so. yeah exactly um, but but it is a neat location because people can come and they can you know of course purchase some uh, sky center or astronomically themed gifts for people you know, uh, prints of astro images like the one behind me um, that are all taken through the same telescopes that you look through at our programs but also it's a location where we can start to do some outreach programming right mm-hmm. so we can bring in people from tucson to come for free on evenings and have just small star parties from a quasi-darker location near the city, you know, look, look at stuff. So. It's still, you know, 
there's something to be said, at least for me, and when when you're up at a place like that and you see, especially at night, when you see the domes opening and stuff like that, I think what's kind of neat is every telescope up there that's opened is is looking at something unique out there. So it kind of makes you, even if you're not doing anything scientific during your viewing events, it kind of makes you feel like you're a part of this, like... That's right. And that's, that's a huge, huge point, um, I, I think, is that you do come up into a research station. And so, you know, on a really dark night, right, you're looking around and there's eight, nine telescope domes that are open at any given time, and they're all doing research. You, you're not separate from that, right? You're right in the middle of it, looking through a telescope. And we will talk about what those other projects are doing to, to the extent that we know on any given night. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does relate to what people are they can make relationships then to what they're looking at through the telescope. And, and I think, you know, this is part of what we try to convey, right? Is that, yes, we're a lot of fun to hang out with. Yes, we have very cool telescopes and toys, you know, that we get to play with up there. Um, but, you know, even though you hear about astronomers looking at, you know, very, very specific, discrete things, right? You know, uh, calculating the orbit of, a, of an asteroid in the asteroid belt or, you know, looking you know, the James Webb Space Telescope looking back in time to the very, very early stages of our universe, right, that that we're not just trying to understand those discrete things, but we're trying to understand the bigger picture, right, the story, mm-hmm. right? We want to relate these things to, like, our past, right, to the formation of the Earth and our solar system and how life maybe started here. And in our present, right, the more maybe we understand about the sun and its, its existence, we can relate that to our, our current life on Earth. And then possibly our future. So these are all just little clues, you know, that we are are trying to learn more about who we are, right? where we're, we've come from, where we are, and where we might be headed. And to me, that's that's how we make it personal for people, right? And, and so um, the looking through the telescope right, and seeing all these neat, cool objects and understanding a little bit of what they are is is a way to personalize that for people. That, that is how do you guys do a a really cool job about it because it's it's not just like you're going to you know not to knock any groups but it's not like you're going to like a club location where it's like oh here's our you know eight inch whatever it's like not only are you going to get this experience where you have this connection with the sky and the universe but you're gonna look through you know pro level gear too to where it's like if you don't have a connection after the fact, it's like, it well, doesn't get right. much better than that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and you know, I mean, Carl Sagan has a million quotes, right. And everybody loves to quote him, but it really is for us about, you know, the way he would talk about studying the universe as a way to know ourselves. Mm-hmm. It really is along those lines. And I think that's what we try to, to carry forward up there. And, and I should also mention, you know, one of the other unique things we're doing is we're starting to offer Spanish language, uh, programs. So if there are folks that want to come, uh, you can contact our office. I don't know if they're on the website yet. And, and we do have monthly programs that are in, uh, delivered in Spanish. And we are uh, hope to increase those in the fall when we have a little more capacity up there. We can all cool. move it in the rearview mirror here. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, well, thanks, guys. That's the end of this uh, session. Big thanks to Alan for hanging out with us. And uh um, if you guys want to know more, uh, we'll get the website up for uh, the Mount Lemon Sky Center. Um, if you want to know more about how to get uh, involved or go up and check it out. Um, so 
thanks for hanging out. We'll see you guys in the next session coming right up. And uh, stay tuned. See you later, guys. Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome back to the What's Up Webcastathon Extreme. I hope you've been having a good time with our sessions that have been going on. Um, but now it's time for our first panel, and this is the Astronomy 101 panel. But of course, with that, before we jump into this completely, we're going to be doing our first giveaway, and I'm going to be giving out that code uh, for you to email in. So. Uh, if we could put the email in the chat for people to see it. It's right down there, actually, um, in green. Uh, if you do info at skywatcherusa.com, that is where you have to email in. And the code is blue shoes, like what you wear on your feet. Blue shoes is the code. You have to email that in in the title of your email. Please give us your, your name, uh, email, and address if you could. So if we do win, we've got all your stuff prepped and ready to go. Now, um, that's pretty much it. So that is the first giveaway for our Star Adventure Pro Pack, the original Star Adventure, not the 2i Wi-Fi. Sorry, you get something for free. You're welcome. Um, but uh, at this point, the code is blue shoes, and you email that in as the title of your email to info at skywatcherusa.com. Now, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. I'd like to welcome all of our panelists for the Astronomy 101 panel. We have Stephen Ramsden from the Charlie yes. Bates Solar Astronomy Project, uh, Helena Cochran, and Fiona Morris. Um, for those who might not know Helena and Fiona, every freaking person on the world knows Stephen because he's bigger than life at this point. <laughs> um, but Helena and Fiona are our newest additions to our ambassador uh, stuff for Skywatcher. And they're also a part of, are both of you part of Stella? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm a new member now. Um, real quick, just uh, I know we're kind of going to jump ahead real uh, quick, uh, real quick, because I know we all have outreach organizations and such. Can you tell Costella's somewhat new? So I want to know if you guys could kind of explain to the viewers what Stella is. Yeah, so Stella stands for like striving to engage ladies in astrophotography. Um, and it was founded around, I think it's maybe a year and a half ago now. And um, I was one of the first members to join. And it's basically a lovely group of women that come together and we meet um, every Saturday. The UK group meet every Saturday and the US group try to meet every Monday. And we have weekly meetings and we chat about Astro, but it's, it's also a support group. We can chat to each other about I don't know anything really we just we get up to all sorts we do like outreach events as well together and um, particularly particularly in the US side of things but um myself Katie and Amber who are the Scottish kind of trio of the group um who <laughs> who have come together um from Stella have actually made a really close connection from it as well um, and I think like through Stella people have been able to make like really close connections us three we're actually starting our own group up, Scott's Lastro. Um, and I think it's just it's just an amazing place for people to come together and meet and chat about chat about their passion. That's awesome. And then uh, Fiona, you mentioned that you're one of the newer additions to that. And um, for those that don't know, um, obviously Stephen's joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, 
I'm joining you from Phoenix, Arizona. Stella, or uh, Stella, she's um, Helena is joining us from Scotland. <laughs> and then Fiona's up in Canada. So we're all over the world at this point. But Fiona, uh, you're one of the Canada. newest additions to Stella, correct? Yeah, I joined like a week ago. Oh, well, <laughs> well it doesn't <laughs> matter. Um, but uh, you've been awesome. doing your own astrophotography as well, as you can see from your rig in the back. Everyone yeah. likes telescopes. So. And then Steven's got his diffraction grading there. Uh, so cool. Well, I'm glad people got to, I think it'd be really neat at a future date to maybe do an episode, like a what's up webcast one hour episode um, for Stella. It'd be kind of cool to get some of you on. I know there's a lot of you, so it, it might be difficult to get ev all the ladies on, but it would be cool to get a couple of you on to talk about what Stella is. Um, Jared, I know you're watching. We should have done that for women in astronomy. I guess I didn't, <laughs> should have been more aware of it. So um, idea. So um, now, uh, so let's get started. This is the Astronomy 101 panel. Uh, this is live for those of you watching. This isn't pre-recorded like the other bits. Um, so in this, we're going to just talk about casually like getting started in astronomy. So if you are new to astronomy, this is perfect for you. Obviously, a lot of you are well-versed in astronomy. So just sit back and enjoy the ride. So, um, so I like to ask everybody, um, when they come on, how did they get started in astronomy? And I know all of you come from a very unique, uh, background. Um, so I, Steven, I'll start with you because you have a very uh, interesting start to how Charlie Bates <laughs> actually got started. Um, Thanks, but I didn't David. know if you wanted to start it or if we should wrap back around. Cause I know Yours is probably the heaviest of uh, all three stories. Whatever you think's best. But I'd like to also mention that for those that have not heard of me, which are many, um, I run the Charlie Bates Solar Astronomy Project at solarastronomy.org. And we run the world's largest solar astronomy outreach program, non-governmental program. And we're in 27 countries. We have a very large solar astronomy and solar imaging chat forum at solarchatforum.com. And uh, that's the place to go to learn about solar astronomy. And um, if you want, I'll just briefly go through how I started. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, significantly older than, than the uh, ladies in appearance, but I wanna say uh, hooray for Stella. I certainly applaud that. And uh, women have been overlooked in astronomy for centuries. Um, we started the Charlie Bates program in 2008. And the reason we started it was to get more students involved in science, which I think has, has really changed lives. Um, it changed my life for sure. And in the, in the US, uh, astronomy clubs are sorely lacking uh, female participants and minority participants for that matter. So I applaud Stella. And I'd like to say publicly that I will support any effort Stella has to make with any materials I can send for uh, more women in astronomy. Um, Charlie Bates Solar Astronomy Project started in 2008 after my friend and fellow veteran Charlie Bates killed himself. It's not named after me, and I'm not Charlie, um, but he was a really generous. <laughs> yeah, I get emails. You know, it's it's so unheard of these days for someone to name something after someone other than themselves uh, in the Kardashian era, I like to call it. But basically, I wanted my friend to be remembered for something other than how he died. So the generosity he displayed in his life and the way he helped me. I wanted to do that with, with um, my stuff. And I had so much gear when I started astronomy, so many things laying around I wasn't using. I thought this is ridiculous to have, 
have all this stuff uh, and not use it. So I just started giving everything away and it was amazing. Uh, and by the way, we, we not on purpose, but we've hit targeted women, minorities uh, and the, the uh, majority without even thinking about it before it was cool. You know, before I, before everybody was woke, it just seemed natural to do that because anybody that was interested in astronomy was going to get help from my program. And they did. And you probably heard of Pranvera, the monster Pranvera that we created from Kosovo and uh, other people. But I got started in astronomy because my mom uh, encouraged me to explore things. And she bought me a Sears Roebuck uh, four inch refracting, I'm sorry, reflecting telescope from the Sears catalog for Christmas one year. And I was eight years old. And the very first thing I did was point it at the sun and try to look at the sun. And of course the, the little solar filter exploded in the eyepiece and the mirror melted. And that was the end of my Christmas uh, present telescope. But from then on, I'm just absolutely fascinated with light, 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 light in any form, whether it's from galaxies or stars or our sun, uh, and just the way that light interacts with things around me and how I'm seeing all of your faces you know, by the qualities of light being manipulated by this technology. To me, it's just a, the most fascinating thing in the world. So I, I was determined to spread that fascination in science to other people. That's how Charlie Bates started, and that's how I got involved in astronomy. Nice. Um, I'll move over to you, Helena. How'd you get started? So it started for me, I always had a, like an interest in space, I think, but I did a, a primary school project when I was seven on life on another planet. And it like just kind of triggered the idea in my head that there could be like aliens out there. I was like, whoa, and seven-year-old me, I was like, I, I want to find them. <laughs> so I asked for a telescope for my 10th birthday and it was a little Celestron first scope. And it's actually one that I really recommend to beginners now. And I sat it on the windowsill and I just looked at the craters on the moon and I was so fascinated by this and I was so excited. And I wanted to share it with everyone else. I wanted to share the excitement I was feeling. And that's when I discovered astrophotography and started building my own rig and started a YouTube channel. But I think mum and dad were also like, let's take it outside when I left the cap off of the first scope on the windowsill and it burnt a hole in the blind um, oh. <laughs> the next morning. And I was like, mm, let's not burn the house down with this homie. So we took it outside into the garden. And obviously I live in Scotland. So the chance to do astrophotography is very slim. But when I do get out, I make the most of it and I document my journey on my YouTube. And yeah, that's really it. I love I love it. I love what I do and I love reaching out to people and meeting new people and the people I've met through it. It's been absolutely amazing so far. So yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. Cool. And then uh, Fiona, uh, how did you get started? So I kind of started backwards. Um, I started out with photography and I have always been interested in like space and science and math. And I just decided where well, one day I was watching TV and I've seen something on space and um, taking pictures of the stars. And I was like, wow, like I can combine two of my hobbies together into one. So I started taking pictures with just a DSLR that my parents had and I built my way up and uh, I got some jobs and I afforded some higher up equipment and uh, smaller telescopes and stuff. And now I've been recently getting into visual astronomy and I, I'm a part of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada and there's 
lots of outreach there and uh, there's lots of people trying to get me into visual astronomy so I can see like the perspective of that as well as photography because they're very different but uh, yeah I just I've always loved space and science and like optics. That's cool. I need I just tell you how much hope both of those stories just gave for me for the future. Uh, I just so so Aww. glad to hear both of you say those things and and I share your love for everything you mentioned including photography and astronomy and it's just such a it's it's a really I live in Atlanta we don't hear that very often from students but I am so proud of the both of you not you Kevin but them yeah I'm a lot of cause <laughs> at this point so it's, no it's it's awesome. it is refreshing because it's but I mean you know you turn on the news or you look at your phone and every five seconds there's something terrible in the world going on and it's, yeah. it is nice to see people you know I used to be in that slot where I was the young guy around, but yeah. now it's, there's another generation below me that's now coming in. It's, it's very cool to see that continue, the legacy continues. Yeah. It's such a turning point in someone's life when they can realize nature around them and, and just stop and look around and see how much beauty there is everywhere. Uh, whether it's in the night sky, whether it's on the, on a wildlife photography or even portrait photography or whatever. And just to get people to slow down these days and, and see that just for a second can totally change their lives. And that's why it's worth so much money and so much time for me personally to do that because I've seen it a thousand times, man. People that just stare at their phone all the time. What's the latest TikTok bling bling video, blah, 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 blah. And you just take them out for an hour and show them how beautiful something is. And it totally changes their perspective on everything. So I'll stop talking, but this is exactly <laughs> what I was hoping for with our program. And I'm just really, really excited to see both of you. Uh, no, that's, that's awesome. And you, so, can. you were the same uh, way when you were yeah. a kid. <laughs> now we're just that other guy <laughs> shoved into the corner. Um, so obviously through your various programs, I know Steven, you've been asked this a million times. So have I, um, and Fiona and Helena, obviously you guys have your various outlets. Um, you, know, you don't have a YouTube for Fiona, you on Instagram primarily, right? Yeah, I haven't started a YouTube channel yet, but I hope to in the future. Cool. And then Helena, you've got your, I mean, you, you're on social media, but your platform of choice seems to be YouTube. Um, okay. As I'm sure things have progressed um, between your two outlets, and of course, Stephen, you're, you're out doing all kinds of stuff. When people ask how to get started uh what's your recommendation for getting involved um or getting their first telescope or getting into observing the night sky is there like a recommendation for beginners that reach out to you anyone can run off with that first so whoever wants to start with that fiona i'd like to hear fiona talk about when she went from her, her parents dslr um and what kind of telescope who did you ask? Did you get on online and ask some forum somewhere? Did you ask friends? How did you decide you were going to go buy what you bought and what was it? Well, uh, yeah, I started off small and I, that's my biggest recommendation is start small and build off that. Like you don't need the top equipment to take like good pictures. Like I started off with a camera that I didn't have to pay for. And I, took pictures and I, I was just amazed by what I could capture off a, like a bottom of the line camera in with the kit lens. And yeah, just starting off small is, is a big thing because when you go out and spend a bunch of money, 
you in on big expensive equipment it's just very overwhelming and if you can't figure out how it works you get very discouraged and yes. frustrated and it just ends up sitting out in your shed collecting dust so when did you when did you go to a tracking mount versus just a tripod and, and did you did you shoot with a tripod for a while with just your camera and then yeah, move to a tracking I, I mount with just a tripod and a camera and then I upgrade it to a full frame DSLR and I still use that on a tripod. And then for Christmas one year, I got a star adventurer and that just took all my pictures. <laughs> oh, it's all downhill. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's one back here in the background. I still, love that. I still love that tracker. Yeah. I use it all the time. Uh, that Skywatcher star adventurer is just a fantastic piece of gear. In fact, I wore mine out about a month ago. I, I used it so much that it, it, it physically could no longer operate. It'd probably been used for 10,000 hours, but Helena, what, what, how did you determine, who did you ask, where did you get the information from, or did you just think of it on your own? So I'm sure like one of the main inspirations for a lot of people getting into astrophotography was Trevor Jones from Astro Backyard. That guy. And I started watching, <laughs> I started watching his videos on YouTube and his tutorials and his processing tutorials, um, along with Nico Carver from Nebula Photos, too. Definitely my <laughs> my main inspirations in the hobby. And um, I, I watched their tutorials like really in depth, and also a lot of others on YouTube. And I kind of just yeah, from there found out where it was best to start. What I'd say to beginners is definitely use what you already have, specifically mm -hmm. like if you are already into photography, because you'll be amazed what you can do with like just a camera and a lens and a tripod. You can get some like really nice, like um, sort of landscape astrophotography, Milky Way constellation photography without a tracker and sort of stepping up from a tripod then to a tracker and knowing how to use the camera on its own is really, really important. Because yes. once you add like the tracker in with it, it becomes sort of very complicated and I'm not very technically minded. So like, I feel like it's really, really important to say to beginners, don't jump into the deep end, exactly what Fiona was saying. Right. Start small. And I specifically started with a tripod and a camera and a lens. And then I moved on to the Star Adventurer um, with a camera and a lens. And then I got my go-to mount. And I think that's a really nice transition because yeah. something like the Star Adventurer is like a mini version of the HEQ5 or the EQ6R. So you learn how to use it. You learn the skills of polar alignment and things like that. And it's not just mm -hmm. one massive jump. Because I feel like when people push themselves and go into it and buy all this equipment, they get really put off because it's so technical. Like it took me six months to learn to polar align. And I was so, so close to just saying, no, I actually can't do this. So it's really, really important to just take those steps and take the time for yourself and don't compare yourself to what other people are doing either. Right. Do it at your own pace. Yeah. Stars you know, aren't going anywhere. So. Um, Kevin and I both, and probably <laughs> uh, both of you also get uh, a stream of emails start coming in around October of every year for mm. people that want to buy uh, their Kia to telescope and yeah. we get hundreds of them and and I'd, I'd like to add in if that's all right with you Kevin um the there's two groups I found there's the group that wants to spend as little as possible and have a great mm -hmm. photograph immediately um and then there's the group that wants to spend as much as possible and have all the gadgets and the gimmicks and both that's of them cool. are way off the mark and what you you both just said about using the equipment you have now 
Um, yeah. You don't need any equipment to go stargaze. You just need uh, these. And you really don't even need these in some cases. You just, uh, but we'll get to the disability first. Um, if you already have a DSLR, like I'm a birder, I'm an avid outdoor photographer, birder. I use a $20,000 lens and Canon full frame DSLR. You know, I got all the gimmicks, but I started with a point and shoot. Um, and, and when I go out on these bird hikes and I'll tell people, you know, you can take a photograph of the Andromeda galaxy as good as that one on the internet with, with what you already have in your hands. And I'll show you how to do it. They cannot believe it. You, 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 you know, or the Orion Nebula, which is in the sky right now in the Northern hemisphere, very mm -hmm. easy to shoot. And I'll take them and say, look, just meet me over here about an hour after sunset. And I'll show you how, how you can take a photograph of the Orion Nebula. It looks exactly like the one you see on the internet that you love so much. And people cannot believe it. And they didn't have to buy anything. So mm. like Fiona says, you already have a camera and it can be a cheap camera. It can be your iPhone. There's apps on the iPhone that let you take a hundred images and stack them. But the thing that you need is patience. You need to realize it's not going to come out of the camera immediately. Perfect. Mm. You need to, to do a little bit of, of learning about how to stack the image or how to position your tripod or how long of an exposure you can take. Like without a tracker, you're pretty much limited to about 15 to 20 seconds in the sky. But with the tracker, the Star Adventurer or some other brand, you can go three or four minutes on a wide field Milky Way shot and look beautiful. Now, as far as solar or, or the people that buy all the gadgets and gimmicks, um, there's not much I can do for them because they have so much money. They don't really care what I say. They, they can buy whatever they want and, and have it. I know people that have... Uh, a dozen telescopes in the eight inch or higher range uh, that maybe use one of them once a year. And those mm. people I don't understand because I give my stuff away. Now, solar astronomy, just briefly, uh, solar astronomy is narrow band, whereas you use one wavelength of light uh, at a time to image and the sun, you see the features of the chromosphere and such. Pretty much everybody on earth started solar astronomy with this Coronado PST, personal solar telescope. Uh, Lunt makes one in the same price range. And when you get this scope, what you get is 656.28 nanometers, which is the light created by hydrogen atoms in the sun's chromosphere. And you see the chromosphere of the sun, you see modeling in the atmosphere, you see prominences, you see flares, and these are easily imaged uh, with any, any camera. It's best to use monochrome because the scope is monochrome. Uh, but that's the way to start out in solar astronomy if you want to see white light, which is the photosphere of the sun, you can take any of the telescopes you have in the background. If it's a refractor, you can add a $200 uh, Herschel wedge to your refractor. If it's a reflecting telescope, you can put a piece of beta film over the end of it or solar film over the end of it. And you will get a magnificent image of the sun's photosphere, which will show you granulation and sunspots. So if you already have telescope equipment, it's very simple to get into solar. Uh, if you just have a DSLR and a camera, you can also buy solar filters that screw on the end of your lens, just like the neutral density filters. And that's very simple also. So, so I would strongly suggest though, that parents stay away from the cheapest telescope they can find, because when you spend $75 on a telescope and a tripod, it's gonna be so hard to use and so prone to breaking that it's gonna discourage your kid immediately. And of course, you'll never figure it out because you're a grown up. You have to have the 12 year old use it and figure it out. But if it's a piece of junk, it's you're never going to use it because it's so junky. So right now, the range you need to be in is three to five hundred dollar range when you're buying a scope for your kid for Christmas 
and that would be one for Skywatcher or Celestron, which you know is the leader in the world for those for those types of scopes. But uh, like both of, both of our guests said, uh, don't go out and spend a bunch of money first. Buy one piece of equipment at a time, and figure out actually how to use it before you decide you need an add-on. You know, buy the PST before you have to have the second add-on for the PST. Yeah. Buy, yeah, you know, buy buy the the simple camera, the kit lens. I love when you said just the kit lens is all I used. Because if you can get a great photo with a kit lens, when you put a real lens on that camera, you're going to be world-class right away. So those are all excellent tips. Kevin? Yeah, one of these little nifty 50s are, you know, they're 100 bucks. They're absolutely terrible for most things. But um, you stop it down, you can get some really Mm -hmm. nice stuff. I think Nico, Nico's watching, by Mm -hmm. the way, and so is Trevor. Um, I think they did a shootout with this and yeah, there's better stuff out there, but it lets you mess around with it. It's a great family portrait lens and all the major companies make one, but you can go out and mess with it. When you started, when you started uh, seriously diving into astrophotography a few years back and you started out with lesser equipment and you were just doing monochrome images, I was so inspired by seeing you do that. This is what I started with. (laughs) Uh, Ultra star. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. It doesn't have a cooler on it. It's got right. one USB. I use so the you, same scope Fiona's you know, got in the back. The you've clearly, you know, gotten yourself into the world class group now, but I'm going to tell you when, when you were just doing the black and whites and using cheap equipment, I was so impressed with it. And uh, as you know, I go out occasionally and just use, because I, I refuse to use certain software because it just boggles my mind. But anyway, mm. you don't need a bunch of gear. You don't need to spend 60 hours on an image. You can, and it's fun. But you can spend mm. 90 seconds on an image and still blow yep. away your friends and appreciate what you're looking at. Yeah, Fiona's just, uh, I just found out about it, actually. Um, just sent over images of the pinwheel and M106 this morning that you shot. Uh, we'll post those later. Um, you've got some cool uh, stuff there. Um, but yeah, I think it's really great because a lot of people nowadays, you go onto these form websites, which are great, or you go on YouTube. And of course, everyone's got their flow on how to do stuff and how to get started. And I think it gets really uh, difficult at times when you maybe talk to someone who's really experienced at a topic. Mm -hmm. um, And they're like, well, this is what I use now. And I think a lot of people get stuck on the fact that like, oh, I need a big full frame monochrome camera or I need a 6200 ZWL or whatever, like, cause that's who's using whatever. You don't need all this stuff. Yeah. They're nice. And I'm juggling way more money in my hand than I should. Um, this works pretty good. Yeah. But <laughs> you, you got to remember the first thing that you're getting into astronomy for is because you think it's fun. And I think a lot of people, yeah. uh, you know, lose track of that at times. Um, and, but it's also really hard, especially as someone who's, paid to push gear into people's face um but deep down i'm still an astronomer and i want you to have a good time with it and you don't need to go buy the biggest fanciest thing and a lot of times you're going to end up on the phone with me being frustrated or you're going to be emailing any one of us about i can't get my guide software to work i can't get this to work so just stair step into it go get a dslr use your parents dslr like fiona did and just stair step into it Stars aren't going anywhere. And if they are, you have way bigger problems to deal with um, right. than a telescope. <laughs> but seen, um, uh, Trevor and Nick's stuff, and I'm, I, I love it both. I mean, uh, but I think back to 2007, 2008, um, when you and I met at NEF and I was just starting out, 
how these people would have been just crushed by the giant Megla astronomy club crowd that would not allow anyone different to come in, no new ideas mm -hmm. allowed, et cetera. And I really think that you and I, Kevin, both had a part in kind of changing a little bit of the attitude on outreach. I know I was the only one putting cameras and imaging equipment because back then nobody wanted to put their expensive stuff out there because the kids were going to mess it up. But I put the most expensive stuff I had and encouraged the kids to mess it up because I wanted them to know how, how it worked. But um, these guys class, now- Isopropyl yeah. alcohol goes a long way. <laughs> right. Like, well, these, unless, these, these guys you're talking about, Trevor Nick, and, and a few others on the internet are really making uh, big jumps in that. Dustin, uh, what's his name? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that too. Uh, could I ask the, the, the girls a question? Sure. The astronomers, I mean, excuse me, you know, I'm, I'm old and my pronoun usage is not woke, but I mean nothing but respect. So when you consider the vast crushing emptiness of what you're looking at in space and how, you know, there's it's such a hostile, cold, lifeless environment just between us and, and the next star. Um, what do you balance that out with to remain? So, cause I understand your fascination with stars. Believe me, Kevin does too. It's something you're born with. You know, it's like flying. Some people fly, some people don't, but there's a lot of negative to think about too, about the emptiness of space versus the beauty of the space. Do you have any comments on, on those uh, aspects of the hobby? I think, Is this off topic? <laughs> no, it's, it's a, I, I want to hear it. <laughs> so. I find it quite easy to find creativity in Astro because when I was starting high school, I was choosing my exam subjects and I was really juggling between the sciences and the arts. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my future. And with Astro, I could combine that like the science side of me that really loved the nitty gritty stuff and the creative side with the editing. So I think I see the beauty more. I don't know whether that answers your question in it because it really gives me like free reign with editing on colors. And yeah. I am very like opinionated on editing. Like I think it's subjective and I think anyone should edit how they want to edit. It's your photo, go mm. for it, go wild. Um, I absolutely love editing and I think it mm -hmm. lets the creative side out of me and it really balances out the sciencey side of it. I think it's just a relief when you start editing um, after having a cold night out. So I think that's what does it for me, definitely. Well, you know, the yeah, sun... What... The beauty is just, like, the beauty makes up for, like, the vastness and how kind of scary space may seem. It does. And, you know, the sun, Absolutely. when I'm looking at it through a telescope, I can, after the morning goes a couple hours on, I can start feeling the warmth of mm. that star. And so it's another tactile sensation besides visual. And it gives me a little bit of a feeling of closeness to it. Mm. And uh, I can't help but think at night when I'm watching, say, even Polaris or looking at the Orion Nebula, you know, it's 1500 light years away. And, you know, no matter what I do, there's no possibility of me ever going there um in my lifetime hopefully you'll be going there uh but the distance between them is so empty and then i think about mm. the light and the photons that come from these nebula and they and they or the stars and it just travels through mm. the universe unencumbered until it gets to my telescope and then yeah. reflects into my eye and i'm seeing an actual physical part of that star you know in my eye not only am i seeing it but everyone on this planet is seeing photons coming from that millions possibly of year light years away object 
uh, you know, it just, it boggles my mind. Uh, and no, That's I'm not smoking pot that... or anything, you know, <laughs> I don't drink <laughs> and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally another thing that fascinates me as well, because you're like seeing back in time in right, space, which right, right. like, like blows my mind. I don't really understand it, but you're seeing yeah. like that object doesn't look like that anymore. And we'll never know what it looks like now in the present yeah. where it's just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Is, is goth, goth still a thing for you guys? Because when I was younger, the goth movement, we were all sad and depressed about everything, you know, life's horrible. And, uh, <laughs> You know, astronomy has always been something, and math even, the math of astronomy has always been something that made me feel connected to everything and that I understood mm. something, you know, and I, it's really just been a fascinating subject for me. And I want to share that with everybody I can share it with, you know. Uh, I, I have always kind of liked that void approach to things, um, mainly because what bothers me a lot about here on earth is the way people treat each other and yeah. the lack of respect mm. we have with people. Yeah. Um, and mm. I feel like astronomy, particularly when you're under a dark sky and all those stars mm -hmm. are staring back at you and you're basically on the beach of a very large, right. vast ocean. Um, I really enjoy that because what um, that really gives people as a, a level of humility again and kind of yeah. smacks you into reality again <laughs> yeah. but what's really interesting and i've gotten more into this with steven with the the spectroscopy stuff is um i think it's neat to take some of that and relate you know i think a lot of people especially i'm being told to move this into the more fun category so sorry jeff so <laughs> it's my um, fault it's my but uh um what I think is really cool is I think a lot of people, especially right now, you know, tend to look for how are we connected to each other and some, and I think a lot of people come into astronomy with that interest of being mm. a part of or understanding the bigger picture. But what's I think is really cool is, and I explain this a lot, especially now that I've started to shift back to visual now that the big telescope is done uh, for outreach purposes, but that we are all a part of this universe. So where you're looking to be a mm. part of something, you're already defaulted yeah. by that because the, yeah. the iron in your blood was created in a star. And when you go and you leave this earth, that right. will then recycle back into the earth and eventually earth will disappear yeah. in a massive. And you mentioned you know, humility and it does yeah. provide some humility, but only to people that take the seconds to look at it and try to understand it. Yeah, you have and to getting take people to, to appreciate to, to put the phone down mm. and look up is is still totally. difficult in our times but you know once they yeah. do it like i say it can change someone's life and i think that's the big thing with uh you know being astronomy 101 if, it's, if someone's coming into us uh, we just went real deep on the subject but um <laughs> we didn't even scratch the surface we before. haven't uh, i'm only being kind point. because jeff simon's my friend i could go way further than this yeah <laughs> but uh the biggest thing is when you're coming into astronomy, the big points that you need are you need to be patient. And if you don't know how to be patient, you're going to learn how to be That's patient. Exactly right. And <laughs> I know Fiona and Helena have figured this out too, because you're sitting there taking images of a faint object. It doesn't just done. Right. Um, right. You're there all night and it puts it into perspective that I worked and I created this thing and it's not this instant level of gratification. So I feel like astronomy doesn't just you're part of this experience with astronomy and yeah. that's what astronomy is, is it's an experience and you're just coming in for the ride. Um, 
but now I'm being told to move other directions. So we're getting what too philosophical, you, apparently. So let's talk about how awesome Skywatcher products are. Yeah, I don't want to beat people over the head with it, even though you already know that we're doing so. Um, so obviously, getting started with you know, I would Fiona's like to say coming. one, yeah, one yeah. thing about a Skywatcher product that is absolutely awesome, and that's this Skywatcher Solar Quest mount, and it's just a little cheapy mount, and it holds a PST. And it also hold a DSLR with a filter on it, but it tracks the sun automatically. You just press the button. It runs off a few batteries. You just set it anywhere. You don't, have, you don't have to point it north or anything. You just put it on the concrete, press the button. It does some whirly, whirly stuff and makes some computer sounds, you know? And then all of a sudden the camera built into it finds the sun and it tracks the sun perfectly for the rest of the time. And it is absolutely fantastic for, for intro to solar astronomy. It is a great product and I'm really happy that Skywatcher put it out. I wish more companies would think about solar astronomy uh, mm. primarily and not just it being a byproduct of, I already have a night's telescope. How about this additional accessory? To me, it's the other way around. Make a comment on that, particularly for those beginners out there because everyone gets into astronomy. I feel like solar would be the next category. It's either astrophotography, but then solar becomes a conversation at that point yeah. on, hey, I want to look at the, I know you were talking to Fiona and Helena before we got started here and, you know, talking about, about supporting Stella with solar equipment and stuff like that. Um, and it's really its own niche, but it is definitely something to consider, especially here in North America, because we are two years from the date from the <laughs> yeah. next total solar eclipse. That That's was right. on accident that that happened, but we have a total solar <laughs> eclipse on April 8th, 2024. Um, so if you want to think about getting into solar astronomy right. now is the time to do it it's <laughs> awesome it's convenient and it's the only carcinogenic version of astronomy so there you go Steven's uh, ready. Steven's ready for it and yeah. if you wait until a month before you're not going to be able to find any glasses yeah uh, these solar that. glasses are they cost me 28 cents a piece roughly uh a month before the eclipse they'll be selling for ten dollars a pair uh, i guarantee you because i was driving my van around trying to give away as many as i could before the eclipse and I can't tell you how many people would take a pack of 50 and then they'd go over to the Walmart parking lot and put them for sale for $10 each. Um, don't so don't do wait that. until, a, yeah, oh, don't so wait until a month before, uh, get, get them now. So real quick, uh, for Fiona and Helena, um, cause we're, we're getting into the, if you guys have questions, by the way, in the chat for anyone here, please do it. We're about 20 minutes left for this particular panel. Um, for anybody who wants to get started in imaging, um, uh, for visual work, it's somewhat easy. Really, any telescope um, is good to go. As Stephen mentioned earlier, anything between and Stephen disappeared. Um, I know, I'm here. I'm just going to mute myself because I know <laughs> I take over the conversations. <laughs> um, anything between 200 and 500. I know that sounds like a lot for some people, but you want to make sure you're getting something decent so you don't ruin your time and it ends up in your garage. Um, <laughs> but you want to have something that's going to be a nice piece of equipment. But um, so visual, really anything's going to work. Um, uh, there's some people who mentioned that binoculars are a good way to start in the chat. I always look over those, but those are a good way to start. But once you get into astrophotography, I know we're kind of weaving between two very big topics, but um, for <laughs> you two, um, for someone who wants to get started into imaging, I know software is a big thing. So what would you recommend? Uh, Cause someone had mentioned earlier, what's a good so uh, software that you guys like to use for getting started into imaging? So I, for... 
stared at it in Photoshop. I knew it was like the top kind of thing. So I, I invested in Photoshop and I learned how to use it, watched tons of tutorials, spent hours um, like every day watching videos and how to work around Photoshop. And I just, I got comfortable with that. And that's what I have been using. And then for Absolutely. you, Helena? Um, for imaging outside, a nice all-rounder that I've actually heard really mixed opinions about, but so far so good. Um, with Nina, I use Nina um, for my imaging. I haven't configured everything with it, so I haven't connected like a focuser or anything. I've just got it connected to the camera and the filter wheel and the mount. But it is such a good all-round piece of software, and the main thing is it's free. <laughs> so things that I've used beforehand, like APT and sequence generator pro they all cost money or a license that you have to pay every month um and nina's free which i think is amazing you have the option to donate to the creators which i highly recommend you do because they've worked very hard to create this amazing software and it is so available um it's just amazing the user interface is really good it's really obvious where everything is and there's just no messing around and there's if you have a problem, there's um, also a really, really active Nina Discord uh, server. Mm. They are so brilliant. You can send them like log files. They just, it's code, mushes of letters and numbers. I don't understand it. But you can send them your log file of your imaging session. And if something's gone wrong, they can analyze that for you and tell you what's happened. I just think it's mm. amazing. They're so good. Their customer service is unreal. So I would really recommend Nina, to be honest. I like uh, there's a sorry Stephen there's a question for Helena um smackdown question really photoshop oh. or pixinsight oh uh, god that's what my <laughs> comment was about oh god. It had to go um, down that road didn't we so, so I feel like I feel like for starting out I started out with photoshop so what I did was I started with photoshop and I got a very like solid workflow and I was very comfortable um, but the thing is, with PixInsight, it's made for astrophotography. Photoshop isn't. So PixInsight can make kind of a six-step process in Photoshop to a one-click process. And that sounds simpler, but to find out how to do that one-click process in PixInsight is much more extensive. <laughs> 45 <laughs> steps. <laughs> yeah, like five years later, you're like running the auto stretch or whatever. Like it does take yeah. a lot of time to figure out but i think once you've got a set workflow in pix insight hands down so much better over photoshop like yeah. i do all my stretching and my colors now in pix insight and i'll maybe go over to photoshop at the end because that's kind of where i'm comfortable with but um a really lovely guy on youtube sean um from visible dark um his pix insight tutorials have actually saved my life um he goes so in-depth he's so brilliant and he's so good if you ever just want to ask him a question on it in the comments or over messages on Instagram. He's so responsive. Um, his videos are just brilliant. So if you find a resource like that and consistently watch, I think I think I'd go Pix Insight. It's really yeah. controversial. I think I'd go Pix Insight. I well, use both. I jump between both yeah. of them all the time. Absolutely. Well, like yeah. Fiona, um, I started my night astrophotography and my solar using Photoshop um, yeah. because I was already using it. I was already familiar with it. There's no question Absolutely. that Pix Insight is the most powerful astro astrophoto yep. processing program on earth. I think that's beyond any debate, um, mm. but the usability of it is it's an intense learning curve. Um, but yeah, photo. I say use whatever you have on hand before you buy anything new. Absolutely. Everybody's got something on their computer. And this brings the topic up. If you're not shooting in raw with your DSLR, 
you mm. need to immediately do that. That's the number one thing that will improve your images of the night sky is to shoot in raw with your camera and then process it into either a JPEG or whatever format you wanna you want to share it in. But Photoshop, every, you know, people have it. And Photoshop has come down in price drastically in the last five years. Yes. Uh, it used to be $1,600 for a copy of Photoshop. Now yes. it's $9.99 a month, you know, for the photo editing subscription. So it is really, really cheap. Um, Pix Insights yes. about $300, I think. And I, I own both of them and use both of them. But like Kevin said, uh, Pix, Pix Insight, you know, there's no doubt it's the best program on earth for this but it is a mm. humongous learning curve. Um, it's like learning, it definitely, it learning to speak another language. language. You know, they use different names Absolutely. for everything. Uh, Absolutely, it depends on your technique as well, like what you're wanting to go for, like what you right. find easiest. Because at the end of the day, like you're gonna want to make that processing workflow as simple as possible for you so you can enjoy it. So if you're looking for simplicity, I would not go for PixInsight, I'd go for mm -hmm. Photoshop. The other thing you have to consider is Photoshop is a trial life is a try a trial is a license, so you right. pay every month for it. Whereas Pix Insight is really expensive, but it is a one-off payment. Right. So in right. the end, like I think for my life, I'm gonna own Photoshop, and I will probably, I don't even want to know how much I'm gonna pay on Photoshop <laughs> for, right. like for the rest of my life. But Pix Insight is a one-off payment. So, I mean, I mm. guess that's another thing to consider. Well, I guarantee that I could put out an image of the night sky, 80% as good as the best image on earth with Photoshop mm. in less than three minutes. Mm. Um, that additional 20% image quality is what takes another four hours Absolutely. of processing and yes. picks insight. And uh, I'm, I'm satisfied with the 80% because most people I you're agree. showing these to on social media have never seen anything and they can't mm. tell the difference between my no. Jupiter image and you know damien peach's jupiter image unless you point mm. it out to him so hey steven there's a question for you what's a good I'm camera for i'm, I'm a... already married yeah okay <laughs> well we got that out of the way okay. <laughs> uh, what's a good camera for the pst or lunt 50. i will tell you exactly there is a company out there now called player one astronomy that is the only camera company on earth that has ever put out a camera aimed specifically at solar imaging. It's owned by a guy named Sean Wang, who is on Facebook, very friendly and helpful. Player One Astronomy sells a camera called the Apollo M series. It comes in three sizes. They're all less than $600. It's a monochrome camera designed specifically for solar. That is the camera by far I'm recommending to everyone for solar astronomy. Um, in solar, if you don't know, you have to take roughly 600 to 1,000 images in as short a period as possible in monochrome and then stack them in some sort of software and do about 10 seconds of processing in Photoshop. So it's very simple. Uh, no solar image will ever take you more than seven minutes, including capture and processing. Uh, Sorry, Simon. Yeah, but yeah, the Player One Astronomy Apollo M series is my 100% top of the line recommendation for solar imaging. We tried to get them on, um, but with uh, COVID and stuff, they, we weren't able to get, work that out. So, but yeah, very responsive guy. And, and uh, you know, they've, they've, they've aimed it at solar and it's about time, you know, because solar astronomy is big, man. And all the coolest people on earth, as you can see, are solar astronomers like me, Kevin, Simon, you know, don't. Don't do it in a black shirt for the love no, of God. No, no, no. <laughs> Every one of these shirts that I own has a hole right here from changing out the wedge 
to a calcium K filter because in that brief second, the sun goes through here and burns a hole in my shirt. I lost a, <laughs> uh, a shirt because I did not have my Esprit 150 covered for a very brief second. Yeah. And it was not fun. So. Did I mention player one astronomy? Apollo M series. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, we're coming down to the last few minutes. So if you've got questions for anybody here, oh, there's one right there. Uh, that's a good one, actually. Favorite target in the nighttime sky to image. That's a hard Omega. one. <laughs> Omega Centauri, man. Is there any is there any argument there? I don't know if Helena can either <laughs> of you get Omega Centauri where you're from. I mean, you guys are both really far north. I don't think no, so. I don't think so. Watch me be wrong. I have no idea. I don't think so. We have a remote observatory in California. If you want to use it anytime, you can use it and then you can grab it whenever you want. So I would say I the most often the image the target is the Orion Nebula for sure. I was about to say, I'm so like not with it, with the times and so cliche, but Orion, 100%. It's yeah. just, it's yeah. such a bright target as well. So bright and colorful. It's so satisfying. Like yeah. after you've done an imaging session with Orion, you can just guarantee the date is going to be amazing. Do you know, yeah. like it's such a solid target and definitely one for beginners because it just gets you so excited Absolutely. by it. Absolutely. I'm going to say Orion. I don't care. <laughs> Orion. <laughs> M42 for those technical people. Yeah, I also like Andromeda too. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a challenging target. They're both challenging. Orion Nebula is really challenging to get uh, the proper brightness from the trap, you know, through a trapezium the all the way to the out. And the, Apo yeah. the uh, Andromeda Galaxy, I can't even see it from where I live in Atlanta. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, it, it would take me hours to get a decent photo, but you can use a DSLR to take images of either well, one of those. Well, you have Omega, so that's fair. <laughs> I don't have that either, but I, I've been to Australia many oh, times. Okay. Yeah, where it's straight up. So. Yeah, Omega Centauri is, is, in my opinion, by far the most beautiful object in the night sky, without a doubt. It, it we got really... to see it from a Texas Star Party when we were there yeah. through a 30-inch. Oh, we were laying on the it's ground, a, but you were looking yeah. through it. It's a globular cluster, and you can really see the difference in colors in the stars, and you can really see a three-dimensional feeling. It's just like you're on the intro to Star Trek or something, and you're oh, flying through wow. it when you see it. It's very three-dimensional globular cluster. So when you guys go to Australia, that's what you need to look yes. at. I will. Yeah. I like anything that's really dusty <laughs> off the beaten yeah. path, weird. And you stuff. would love George Barnard. Right Bar mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> we are Barnard catalog, pollen, everything. FDN, LBN, all mm. those weird uh, what happened? things. Did we free? Oh, there we go. There we go. Uh, let's see. Uh, question for Fiona is uh, what's Fiona's main imaging scope behind her? Uh, well, I, that's brand new pretty much to me. I've gotten it a couple months ago. But that's a eight inch Quattro Skywatcher telescope um, mounted on the EQ6R Pro. The perfect fit. Actually, for the Quattros, um, <laughs> the Quattros are literally the perfect scope, modern day telescope. You're getting a lot of aperture, they're fast, and they actually match with a lot of the um, uh, questions out there. The questions got too many things bouncing around. They match with a lot of the sensors out there with the smaller pixels, which is really helpful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's know, what my camera has the smaller pixels and it's I'm up my game. You're a 533 camera? Uh, mine's a 183. Oh, uh, but really yeah. tiny yeah, pixels. It's, tiny. it's a little bit oversampled, but uh, I just sharpen it up. Nice. Community. You need one of these, the Starzona Nexus. It drops it to F3. Oh, oh. awesome. <laughs> I'll 
we'll have to talk to them. Um, let's see. Uh, well, anything else floating around here? I know we got a lot of people asking. Well, what's stuff. Helena's uh, imaging scope? What, yeah. what is she? What is she doing? My main one is the Skywatcher um, Esprit 120. Um, it's, it's my favorite scope. imaging scope. It's favorite scope I've ever used. Um, and it that's on the EQ. <laughs> Um, and that's on the ET6R Pro uh, but the one before that that I used which is another one that I recommend to beginners um, is the Skywatcher um, AT-ED yep it's sitting over the EvoStar AT-ED absolutely brilliant scope for beginners really really nice it's a little bit like the doesn't have to be mounted onto an EQ6R that's serious capable mounting but um, it goes really well with like the HEQ5 absolutely brilliant yeah, yeah my, that's a good scope. My main one is the uh, Skywatcher, and this is before they were giving me stuff for free, um, is the Skywatcher <laughs> uh, Esprit 150. That's what I use for all my imaging. Oh, my God. That'd be white amazing. light and oh. calcium K solar imaging. Mm. It's an absolutely fantastic scope. I had a guy, Dan Llewellyn, who's a big-time night photographer, come over and, mm. and try my scope. He ran some tests on it and stuff when I first got it and tried to buy it from me for more than, you know, more than the retail price that night. But no. And then I use the Lunt, uh, I use a custom Lunt 100 millimeter that has two external mm. 100 millimeter Edelons on it for my hydrogen alpha imaging. That's amazing. So, yeah, you get a nice refractor, you put some filters on it. Yep. But that, that 150 Esprit is, is fantastic. I will say this is before they, they got a better focuser on them. So I haven't changed the focuser on every scope I own. I changed the focuser over to a feather touch focuser. Mm. But that's just because I like the way the feather touch feels. Oh, the Esprit range is just love it. Favorite. Send her one immediately, Lagore. Send them both one. Fiona has one. We need Send her another uh, one. I'm sorry. Helena has one. Fiona one. needs one um, whenever we have them again because everything's so back ordered and going there. out the door. Yeah. It's right behind me, actually, on the, on the far mount. I don't know if you can see that. But, yeah, that's my 150, trusty 150 Esprit. Ooh. double guns so no it's it's a beast no honestly helena and fiona if you ever want to mess with a 150 we have our remote observatory it's under bordel two skies in california that's got a zw 6200 on the back of it and 850 millimeter square chroma filters loaded in the wheel so oh just make sure you've got <laughs> a large enough hard drive to handle it because it I was gonna say my laptop might die. <laughs> I had to upgrade the computer because when you open up a full 61 megapixel image and try to apply a flat and a dark, it's like um big, big, big sensors. Um, I'm glad you guys are enjoying all your stuff. I I know Steven is, he's got half the crap behind him as Skywatcher stuff. Um, but um so that's kind of where we're at with all that. If you guys want to, do you guys have, uh, Steven has multiple websites. Um, Fiona, if they want to see your work, you're over at Instagram. Um, I don't think you have a website at the moment, even though most use Instagram now. So. I have a website linked in my Instagram profile. Oh, well, there you go. Every Go there, <laughs> uh, check her out. Um, and then Helena, you've got your YouTube channel. What's the name of it again? Yeah, I'm Helena's Astro Photography on YouTube and then Instagram, Helena's Astro. There you go. Her and Nico are always doing videos and doing crazy projects together. We're going to have Nico on in the next panel along with Trevor. 
Um, and uh, Kalpana Pot of Griffith Observatory is going to be in there. So um, if you guys have any last thoughts on this panel, now's the time to get it um, up in, into the chat uh, for any of our guests. Uh, thank you all for hanging out with us, of course, uh, this morning or afternoon. Favorite Star Trek evening. character. Night. Favorite Star Trek character, Helena. I've never watched Star Trek. Oh my is this God. Oh my God. You, like, Steven's going to explode. And so is my boss, Jeff. Sienna, favorite Star Trek character. I'm more of a Star Wars fan myself. Oh my Thank God. There went all of the, the Charlie Bate endorsements just left. <laughs> Kevin. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I, I like Spock. Yes. Uh, Jeff Simon. Yeah. He'll have to write it in the chat because I'm looking at him, but I uh, can't hear him. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Spock. also uh, uh, Trevor Jones from Master Backyard likes Data. That's his favorite. Ah, that's a good choice. Good choice. Um, Nico, hopefully, will chime in here, or else he'll be. I don't know. He'll, a lot of Data support. Um, real quick, um, get your. Uh, you need to email in for info at skywatchusa.com if you want to win that Star Adventure Pro Pack. Um, the code for that in yeah. the title of the email is Blue Shoes. So you need to go in and uh, email that in. And then, of course, we've got plenty of other stuff uh, coming up. Uh, by the way, Jeff's favorite character is Spock. Good man. Um, Good man. So, uh, but yeah, there's still time to enter that. And we've got a bunch of other stuff uh, coming up there. Uh, Nico likes Lieutenant Worf. Worst father ever. <laughs> I know who um, Simon likes. Simon's a big T'Pol fan on Star from Star Trek Enterprise. I know. Yeah. So we're all. Wait a minute, Jared. I what is yours? Uh, Jared's our. Uh, I'm going to call him out. Jared's our marketing guy. Hopefully, you guys get to meet him at a star party. Um, but Jared's the only one who hasn't said anything, and I know he's going to throw a curveball in here too. So he better throw something. Quark. In one of I, I feel a quark coming on. A quark. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Um, thanks all. I know it's you know kind of difficult navigating trying to get you all together, being everyone's across the world, but especially you, Helena, because it's it is later where you are at this point. Um, okay. but, I love uh, technology, I love technology. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, oh, Jared is, uh, Geordi or Picard. Yeah. Yeah. Geordi the forge. Go. Good one. Good one. There you go. Um, awesome. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we definitely, definitely, I think need to do an episode with Stella though. So we'll have to talk to Let's both of you. And I know there's a couple of uh you for the uh the group that are out here in arizona um as well i think you have like diana mm -hmm. who i haven't yeah. met yet but i know she's all over the place with stuff as well as several others you guys have gotten a ton of support in the chat for stella so uh oh. i have a feeling if we don't do it we're gonna get in major trouble uh, <laughs> there will be riots against skywatcher for not having the stella team on so we'll talk about that I know there's a lot of you, so I will let you fight amongst yourselves about who's going to be on it. Um, uh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. For those emailing in to win something, it is the subject line. You have to write blue shoes into the subject line. Uh, in the email, if you could give us your name, phone number, um, and all that, 
as well as your address. So it makes it easier when we go to ship your stuff. Um, please okay. send that up to us as soon as possible. And um, that's pretty much it. So thank you guys for hanging out with us. Um, thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. And we're going to switch over here in just a sec uh, for our next uh, sessions. So um, I'm getting the, I should go a little bit longer. This I've, We've never done something this complicated before. So I'm staring at four screens. I've got way too many eyes on me and it's rather uncomfortable. So, um, but for those of you watching that might have to go, we do have our virtual star party tonight as well. Fiona and Helena, you're more than well. Helena's probably gonna be asleep. Um, <laughs> be like four in the morning. <laughs> It's time for me to go. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with us, and we will see you guys soon. Get our telescope. everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome to our next session of the What's Up webcast, Webcast-a-thon Extreme. I'm here with Brian from Skies Away uh, Remote Observatories, um, and Brian's kind of a, I wouldn't say he's the newest addition to uh, remote observatories, but you're still kind of new um, to the whole remote game, but you have quite an awesome facility now, as you can see from the telescopes behind you. Um, but I thought it would be cool for viewers to see what Skies Away actually offers. And um, if someone has interest in hosting their telescope, um, what Skies Away brings to the table. So I'll just hand that off to you and let us know what Skies Away is about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, it's the dark skies that we have here. Uh, we have been for uh, a few years now offering uh, various astronomy services that would include doing telescope installations both here but also off-site for people who might be uh, assembling their own home or backyard observatory or at another uh, remote facility. So we do a lot of that but we also our primary home base here at Skiesways in uh, Central California kind of nestled between uh, Big Sur uh, and uh, the Highway 101 kind of in uh, no man's land, which is why we have our Bortle Two Skies here. Um, weather is great year round, so there's a big advantage of having both dark and accessible skies where you're not necessarily going to like an extreme location that also would encounter extreme weather. And there's always trade-offs to, to all of that. But yeah, we offer various astronomy services and dark sky hosting for your telescope, um, and it's been it's been quite a, it's been quite a year. A lot of finding a lot of interests. Uh, we've had uh, numerous installs. It's actually, uh, the roof is partly open now, so it's kind of bright back there. But we've we've got we've got a few installs going. On. Uh, you can't quite see all of them going on back here, but um, maybe at some point we'll do like an evening. You know, I could show you in the evening. Well, we'll have a lot of this stuff shown on our website as well. Um, I think uh, if you go to uh, remote.skiesaway.com, you'll see the kind of the introductory photo of the observatory that I'm in now. This is a shared roll-off observatory. We call it Saros One. Uh, so it's the Skiesaway Remote Observatories. This is Building One. Uh, incidentally, Building Two is underway. Construction's actually begun. 
just to kind of give an indicator of the interest that's built up already. So it's been exciting. I've been largely a one-man show with a lot of this. I have had some help both on the IT side of things and and uh, and you know accounting and bookkeeping. But all that's it's been a it's been a fun ride so far. Now, skies away. Um obviously we have a telescope out there um and for those of you who are going to be joining us this evening uh for the virtual star party of course that's weather permitting um the telescope we'll be using this evening for the virtual star party will be is actually at skies away um taking advantage of those extremely dark skies but what's kind of cool about your facility brian is uh people can't they can actually see the roof in the Saros uh, buildings is a little bit different than your standard uh, roll-off because it actually is kind of that arced uh, roof. So you can actually run your system for the most part, um, even with the roof closed, which was kind of unique in the design. Yeah, yeah, that was like a, an early requirement on my part. So, so I designed this roll-off and that was one of the key design goals was to never have to worry about park position it's just an it's a non-issue so if your telescope's in here it clears the roof and actually i've even learned more recently how advantageous that can be because there's a lot of testing you sometimes need to do indoors or uh sometimes uh even if you're tuning like a direct drive mount or just need to slew your scope around and you know you don't want to be in doing this at night during prime time or sometimes at night if you're exposed to the elements or wind stuff like that so it's 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 a nice thing to not have there are no fail safes to worry about park because collision is not possible um, and so that's made possible by it's a steel master roof so instead of a an entire quonset hut it's the roof segment so the building is still four walls like a building would be maybe you can see the lighting yeah and it's got uh the overhead clearance and I know we won't see it really well here but the south wall collapses because you do end up with uh, the end walls do match you can see on the north end wall see how it's sealed up the north end wall um, fills in the arch right the clearance whereas the south end wall does that but it collapses so that you're not missing that obstruction to the south which is of course kind of a, your prime sky that like everyone wants so um, that's been, I've been happy with it so far. The other nice thing about these corrugated steel roofs is they're actually much lighter, they're much stronger and more rigid than stick construction. They stay, they really stay, they don't deform, they don't uh, warp and sag and all that. And on that same note, the, the frame, the, the rails and the rollers and the frame, it's also metal, which I would frankly say is kind of a requirement. I know I've seen many, I've seen really good roll-offs that use, you know, really well-made, uh, if you're using timbers, like for the outriggers, inevitably you have to adjust it. It will get out of parallel, it'll sag, it'll warp, it'll bind. It's just inevitable, right? But there's, you don't have to worry about that so much with metal. Actually, it's not going to move. There may be other things long-term that, that, but it's, it's a huge advantage. And we all know about how price has gone lately. Metal is not necessarily that much more expensive than wood, really, at the end of the day. And a lot of our assembly was done on site with nuts and bolts instead of welding everything. So it's uh, I've been pleased with it so far, just in the trying to keep it really simple and effective, but also knowing that 
you know, being able to move your scope around anytime without collision was, was a big deal. Now, um, for those who might be interested in hosting at your site, what are some of like the specifications like skywise and obviously like what kind of equipment can the peer, uh, what's the amount of room each peer has or what's the largest instrument your peers can hold for anybody interested? Yeah, we got, so the peer, the peer height is almost unlimited. You've got something like, well, not unlimited, but you've got something like a nine foot clearance um, at the center of the building and like eight and change at the edge of the building. And you can of course adjust the peer height as necessary. So you get the nice, um, a happy medium between a good horizon that's not very obstructed by the walls. Uh, maybe wind protection if you want wind protection, if you want a lower sitting telescope, but also, of course, having the overhead clearance. Um, the radius, the swing radius, it's three and three quarters. You're almost at eight feet. You're like seven, well, you're at seven and a half foot um, uh, circle per pier, right? And when I was doing the floor plans a while, a couple of years ago, I was kind of obsessing with the floor plan because, of course, everyone wants bigger, everyone wants more. And I thought, well, seven and a half is not that. It's actually a lot. A seven and a half is a lot. To put that into perspective, we have a, a half meter CDK sitting here in the building right now that's not obstructing that swing radius that I'm talking about, the three and three quarter swing radius. And we have uh, a 17 on a pier, I'm sorry, a 17 on a wedge, equatorial wedge and, and the L500. And that's pretty much maxing out the, the capacity. So you go up to about a 20 inch on an altazimuth or 17 on uh, an equatorial wedge with the pier height of your choice, kind of uh, like to say the pier height that you might want to, uh, to dial in. And then that's it. And then 24 seven access and, you know, the sky every night we've had this, um, we've had this record drought. So it's been kind of this good and bad thing. It's definitely very bad locally as far as water and stuff is concerned, but it's thrusted us to over 300 clear nights a year. It's like, we're, we're like complete desert weather at this point. Um, good for astronomy, not so much good for some other things, but we have a lot of clear nights out here. And it's a very, very uh, temperate climate. It's it's rather calm at night. Seeing is good. Um, we actually just started to publish our seeing data. There is a telemetry site that you'll find. Uh, I mentioned the, the website remote.skiesaway.com. There's a couple links there, uh, including the live telemetry. It'll show you some stats. You were asking me about that a moment ago, like uh, if you know sky stats, we, we post the uh, the SQM, the uh, magnitudes per square arc second, you know, sky darkness, um, the seeing as measured by a, by an SM1 seeing monitor. And we got our all sky cam and some basic weather telemetry. And you can see the, you actually can see the building now, probably a better view than what you're seeing right now from the, from the live telemetry site. And, uh, and then the other nice thing on top of all that, so you're getting the pier, right? But, um, uh, I live here full time, so that's a big thing. So it's basically, I'm just here full time, around the clock, on site, support, day and night, um, which I think is very useful for those who have done remote setups or even just their backyard setups. Can appreciate the value in having someone there to look at something uh, when it requires more than just what a software something can do. You know, remote switching or anything that you might need to do. So. Um, yeah, it's been a great site. A lot of 
uh, clients so far have started to recognize that and I came here for that reason and so so far have been enjoying that. I know one of the big advantages living in Arizona, um, one of the biggest problems here and probably for most of the Southwest is monsoon season completely wipes us out from probably early July till probably early part of fall at times. Weather can be really sketchy. Um, and that shuts down almost prime time, like Milky Way, Sagittarius, you know, Scorpio, Ophiuchus regions. And the nice thing of having the facility out there with our scope, at least, is you don't have to deal with monsoon weather out there. So it, it gives uh, that access back to that sky, which is an advantage of your site as well. And it, it has been very calm. I know there's been some nights where we've been right around an arc second even maybe better on some nights um give or take but you know a lot of times it hovers not much above an arc second to 1.5 arc second seeing um out there from the several times i've imaged out there yeah yeah i've been been enjoying that and uh seeing the larger aperture instruments starting to now take advantage of that seeing um for their for their use too which is good it is yeah the seeing it's good to point that the seeing has been very nice and consistent too um i just find that at night when it's clear which now is often um the weather volatility is not it's very low there's you pretty much know from the beginning if you're going to have a good night um and i think that's kind of speaking to what you're talking about with monsoon i did an installation in west texas last summer and 15 minutes can be the difference between perfect weather and, oh my goodness, there's hail coming. And it's, wow, I was just, you know, I was just, I was a little bit surprised at the volatility of the weather, how calm it could be and how disarming it can be. And then suddenly you're caught flat-footed and a massive system is coming in. Uh, and I, I experienced some of that monsoon you talked about. And actually last year, I think, was a particularly uh, severe one too for, for the summer. Um, Texas was getting more rain than, than we were in California in the wintertime. And I mean, our winter was not as rainy as the Texas summer at that time. So, um, I can definitely appreciate the Scott, the, you know, the weather consistency that we have here. Um, and, uh, there's been, um, with that, I know that the other thing that's been happening obviously is the wildfire smoke. And that's been a great concern for everyone, uh, including us. And I'm sure basically the whole Western half of the United States or even most of the continental US experienced um, smoke essentially coming from like California, Oregon, some of Arizona too. And um, well, we're about 12 miles from the Pacific Ocean by crow's flight, which is another reason for the good seeing. So we get a pretty steady onshore uh, laminar flow. Last summer, we had a, um, a predominant onshore system that kind of uh, persisted and it kept us upwind a lot of a lot of that smoke. It's not always going to be the case. There will, you know, as in the coming, you know, summers, we'll have, I'm sure, some wildfire smoke as everyone's now having to deal with. But having that onshore from the ocean, boy, that's nice. Not only for us to breathe clean air, but also to maintain our our clear skies. So that's something we've been keeping an eye on as well. Uh, that that's pretty cool with your site where the there's nothing really to your south other than the pacific at this point yeah yeah and you know yeah the south 
it kind of goes over towards uh, towards where, for those who know where Hearst Castle is, and then you've got like Cambria and Stan Simeon, who, by the way, Cambria is is uh, currently involved in trying to get IDA designation for a dark sky community, uh, which was all the more all the more of a you know reason to to support dark skies. And then to our west, we have the Los Padres. Uh, and then it also kind of blends into Big Sur, uh, which is absolutely, absolutely dark. Like if you go there, like uh, we're in the same, kind of in the foothills of the same mountain range as Cone Peak. And then further to the north would be Choose Ridge, where we have the Monterey Institute for uh, Research Astronomy. They've got, a, I think, a one meter Cassegrain up there. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of imagers and astronomers like to go up to Choose Ridge. So we're in that same mountain range known for its good seeing. And yeah, and to the west, you've got the ocean and the way that our the way that the coastline is yeah, to our south. It also we also come over and end up to the ocean. So to our south and to our west, there's nothing. And it's absolutely dark. When I first moved here, I was blown away at the seeing the zodiacal light and how bright and how high the zodiacal light was at times. And I thought this is amazing. Like I used to have to go to remote star parties like you know, I'd go to GSSP in Northeastern California or, or Texas Star Party to see that kind of thing. And now here it is at home. So that was a really just a that was just a really cool thing to to realize when when we moved here. Awesome. Well, that pretty much blows through this session here, guys. Mm -hmm. So uh, big thanks to Brian for hanging out with us. If you want to know more about Skies Away, um, we'll get the website down um, in the comment section down there, or we'll, we'll pop a link up there for you guys. Um, but we'll put all their information down below if you want to know more about Skies Away um, and if you're interested in installing your equipment there. Uh, stay tuned. We have another session right after this. And thanks very much for hanging out with us, guys. See you soon. Great. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Skywatcher What's Up Webcast-a-thon Extreme. Uh, we are sitting down with Louis Navarro for our Fuji session. Um, good morning, Louis. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me, Kevin. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Uh, now, real quick, what, what is it that you actually do for Fuji? For Fuji, I'm the Senior Product Specialist for the West Coast. I pretty much uh, support our dealers here in the West between west of Colorado all the way to, of course, I'm based here in Southern California, Washington, um, Portland, between Hawaii and Alaska. Um, so it's territory just, you know, keeps me busy uh, with yeah, customers. Yeah, it sounds and like you get to go to a lot of cool different places too yes. because of that. So. Can't complain. <laughs> um, so I know this is just a real quick little 15 minute session, so we'll just jump right into it. Um, you know, I've I've shot with a bunch of different cameras on the market, as I'm sure you have. Um, I've seen more and more people start shooting with Fuji, but how does Fujifilm work for nightscape photography, specifically for like Milky Way work? Well, one thing we are a little bit different from the rest of the market is the rest of the market uses a bare matrix sensor. So mm -hmm. you'll have uh, pretty much like our, you know, like a red, GG, green, green, blue, but it's a separate pattern. So you have one line of red with the green, another line with blue with the green. 
And what Fuji has uh, designed and been using the last, uh, we'll say, 10 years is what we call the X-Trans sensor. X-Trans sensor, instead of having a four, uh, four pattern, and when I say four pattern, you have one red, one blue, and then the two greens. We actually have six across. So we, each line, any way you cut it, up or down, you're going to have your red and your blue with your greens. Um, by doing that, um, especially for folks who are doing Milky Way, it actually performs like a H filter. Uh, so you get that um, uh, removal of some of the uh, pollution in the night sky. And that's without any modification. And some folks find it that uh, um, it actually performs as good or sometimes better some of the modifications on some of the other cameras. Oh, interesting. Um, is that across the whole line? I know Fuji basically focuses on the APS-C and then the medium format sensors. There's no full frame in the line uh, currently. But is that true for both sensor sizes? Uh, just on the uh, X-Series. So that is strictly on the X-Series. On the medium format, um, we are bare sensor. Okay. Because I think those are Sony sensors um, as well, or unless Fuji makes their own sensor. We design them, and Fuji will create the design of the color pattern and the filter, and um, Sony will create the wafer for the sensors for that. Yes. Cool. That's correct. Uh, so... I know another thing that's kind of interesting about uh, Fuji is that you guys have some camera functions that are kind of geared more towards, you know, the nighttime experience for the nightscape photographer. I didn't know if you could kind of go into detail about those. Yeah, one of them is uh, we have a mode called dark mode. Actually, you'll see your screen in red. So actually we'll uh, save your eyes from any bright uh, outside colors, whites or any blues. So it's like a dark red screen. So you can see your information uh, on your display, both LCD and your electronic viewfinder. So that helps um, for your long-term uh, night you know, photography for your eyes. And also if you wanna work with uh, controls of just the white light, you can actually independently control the light of your LCD and your um, electronic viewfinder. So if you don't wanna use the red mode or the dark mode, you do have an option to really uh, bring down the, the brightness on both. That's pretty cool. I wish I had that on my camera. That would actually be kind of nice rather than getting, you know, some cellophane or something yes. to put over the screen or something. That's actually a really nice touch. Um, are there certain models in the lineup of the, the X series in particular that you find are more popular with some of the, your Nightscape clientele? Well, um, that's funny you ask because I think they're pretty much being used all the top line to the midline. Uh, if you're going to use a very light um, example, your Star Venture, that's more size of a lighter weight under six pounds or cube. I tend to use our S20, or not S20, but S10, um, XT20, and uh, uh, any of the lighter systems that want to travel backpack. Uh, I do have like uh, XT4, XT3, XPro3, that if you need the weather resistant, then I can also. Uh, put a heavier lens, uh, I can also use the bigger tracker um, that will hold uh, up to 11 pounds of yours. Uh, so awesome. depends on the conditions of the environment. But uh, if you want to travel light, you could definitely go under 500 grams. And uh, with a lighter lens, um, you could do it really uh, very light or very robust. 
Yeah, and that's what I've started to see with a lot of our clients who call in for, you know, support on the trackers and such. It seems like more and more people are switching to Fuji. Um, and it seems to be a big plus because of the smaller format, the smaller weight capacity, especially when you're backpacking as opposed to, you know, some of the competing camera bands, which are, you know, full frame. And obviously when you get full frame sensors comes full frame glass and... Right you can only make that so small so that's an advantage of the the smaller sensor and then you guys have a pretty wide range of uh lenses that support the x mount we do we have over 40 lenses and uh you know they're fuji non-optics that's been over been around over 80 years so they're really crisp uh, uh bright uh the clarity the resulting power so it's amazing that on a small little package how uh, amazing images you can capture how sharp with detail I've, we were at, um, uh, oh, I forgot the name of the, the show. It's in the fall. Generally, it's a, it's a photo show in, uh, Manhattan. Um, uh, photo plus, photo plus. That's Javits. it. Um, Better. yeah, that's an awesome show, but I was able to see a lot of the lenses up close for the first time. Um, I had a coworker who used to shoot or he still shoots Fuji. This doesn't work with us anymore, unfortunately, but he would always talk about his Fuji cameras. Um, but I had the pleasure of seeing one of those monster 200 F2s um, oh, yes. you guys make, which would be unbelievable for astrophotography on a larger mount. Yeah, the 200 is very popular. So is our 100 to 400. Uh, you could put a 2X and it's just like having a telescope. Uh, once you have a tracker, you could do some deep sky. Um, and that's a really, really a robust lens. That's one of our, what we call, we consider, or we call it a red badge additional fluoride coatings that help you cut through the light pollution, uh, light bending. Um, so it's incredible. We do have incredible lenses um, that work with your astrophotography. Now, um, one of the other questions I had for you is um, how do you control the camera? Do you need like shutter releases and stuff like that? Um, so we do have your typical remote cable, but we also you could do it from the phone app wirelessly. Um, our cameras are Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And we do have inter interval control. So you could, uh, that depends on the size of your media card. You could run it for hours and hours and control the timing how you want to control that uh, each segment of your shots. That's pretty, that's I know what the- built in. Yeah, that's awesome. I know with the Star Adventures, particularly the new like two eyes and the minis is you can control the shutter. And I've had people call up asking how, if they can talk, you know, wirelessly, which would be really kind of cool, but um, if you're using one of these Fuji cameras that has that capability, you'd probably just set your Star Adventure to just track, but then you can set all your cool stuff up through their app and be able to just sit there, which I guess would be awesome on a cold night because you can go back in the car and just yeah. program everything oh, yes. to go. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, how I've been using with my Star, you know, my Mini and my Star Adventure, both of them, uh, just the built-in intervals and... Uh, just sit down with my friends and uh, talk and while the camera's working away. Yep. That's kind of all you can do. I mean, it's kind of like watching grass grow once you hit the trigger and you're just kind of, that's true. Letting it do its thing. Um, in your lens lineup, are there any lenses you personally have found are that you enjoy using for the nightscape work? One of my favorites is uh, we have a 14, uh, 2.8. Um, the reason it's my favorite uh, being wide, to get also some foregrounds in the Milky Way, that uh, the resulting power is incredible on that lens and no coma in your stars. 
Uh, so I think that's uh, probably a lot of folks' favorite uh, uh, lens, and that's the 14 millimeter 2.8. Uh, the other lens, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the 100 to 400. And um, last year I started using the new, we have a new 8 to 16 2.8. Oh, wow. And um, it's, um, I'm able to point it up and get the south and north of the uh, trailing stars and actually get the opposite trailing. Uh, very oh, that's unique cool. look, and, uh, and it's not a fisheye at all. So, um, uh, so you will get some really quality, and that's another lens that's also a red badge. So the quality of the coatings on that's incredible too. Um, usually, that's where you find myself on those lenses. Uh, the other one's probably also the sixteen fifty five two point eight. It's also a very uh, good lens. I think for most folks, they are using the lens that we call the kit lens. But it's all metal and glass. It's a uh, it's eighteen to fifty five to eight to four five, and that does incredible with the lens that it's bundled with that they could do and start with their astrophotography. Awesome. Um, I know one thing that comes up with Fuji. I'm sure you've answered this question about a million and a half times. Is I think a lot of people get hung up that there's no full frame option. And I was curious, you being the product, you know, we, I'm a product specialist for Skywatcher. We have our handful of questions that constantly come up, but I'd be curious to know what's Fuji's approach to not having the full frame that people get kind of hung up on um, at that point. Yeah. And that is a question that um, we used to get often, but I think it kind of died down since we launched the medium format. Uh, some people consider the large format. Uh, we look at it if you really want some really additional detail, uh, more dynamic range, um, you know, working with a true 16-bit uh, large format, uh, well, that's what we'll get you. It's uh, a larger sensor, and it's 1.7 uh, larger than your full frame, or your 35. Um, and then you have aspect ratio of 4.3. And so, and then it has, I think, a pitch of 5.64. Uh, so pretty much some of your sensors that you put back in your telescopes. Um, and um, now we have 15 lenses. We announced three more. Uh, so pretty much that question's kind of been dying, died off because they could see the, how we expanded um, that lineup. We are on our fifth body. Uh, so we just introduced two last year. Um, we give them a choice between the 51 uh, megapixel to 102 megapixels, uh, two different versions. Them. We have one that's very compact and one with a vertical grip. So it's uh, uh, we we've been doing medium format as a company, probably as in the 70s medium format. And as we went on, you know, we had the GX680, uh, some of the more range finders. Uh, we had uh, also our digital back. Um, we made the uh, Hasselblad H system, both the body and the and the lens system. So. It's nothing new to them. It's something that's very normal to them, something that they've been doing for many years. So they definitely have that experience on the medium format and large format. So, so I guess that's that, the direction that they're that Yeah, they're it kind of sets a unique, rather than following the typical trend of, oh, we offer this sensor or this sensor, you know, it's like, let's break the mold a little yeah. bit and go. It, yeah, 35, it is a crowded market and uh, a large format or medium format, it happens to, you know, Fuji really, Fujifilm took it a good hold at it and uh, really made a dent with Hasselblad and with Phase and also with Pentex. And so we're kind of sort of the leaders of bringing it very compact, very usable, uh, very uh, in 
to it, the the GUI and the lens lineup. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. we really did a good job. So you actually have choices. They're much more obtainable than, say, some of the other oh, yes. uh, large formats. There I have some friends who have systems. That yeah. People could actually uh, start with the system as uh, low as uh, $4,000 from the body. Um, yeah. And I've, I've seen the, you know, phase ones and Hasselblads and stuff, and they're incredible. But man, is the air thin up there when it comes to the price on and those. Sometimes so. you might have to bring a technician who knows that and understand that camera to operate yeah. for you too. So the Fuji is just kind of, you know, an advancement of if you're used to any kind of modern day camera system, it's just bigger. So and the menu is actually identical to the X series, uh, the GUI. It's the same format. So if you use our X series, you're going to turn on the medium format, the GFX. It's the same menu, uh, same structure. And so it'd be really, uh, easy to understand it and operate it really quick. Very cool. Um, well, that's it. We pretty much burned through our 15 minute session. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, thank you for if, inviting me, Kevin. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And if they want to know more about uh, Fuji uh, optics or cameras, they just go to Fuji's website. Yeah, it's uh, Fujifilm-X.com. We have a lot of information a lot of videos actually there's a couple of videos on astrophotography that they may enjoy and then the whole lineup of uh, glass and uh, a whole bunch of different uh, sections of photography it's under the learning center that they can learn a lot too also perfect well thanks everybody for watching this session stay tuned for our next session and we will see you guys soon take care everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher and welcome back to the What's Up Webcast-a-thon Extreme. I'm sitting here with Jen for our Daystar Filter session. Hi, Jen. Um, hey for those of you who've never used a Daystar Filter before, first off, I don't know what rock you've been under and shame <laughs> on you. Um, but Daystar has been around for a while, actually. Actually longer than me telescopes. Whoa. <laughs> um, and Daystar has really been known for making, and probably I would say spearheading the narrowband solar astronomy world, at least for the amateur market. And largely beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Before um, Daystar came along, it was very, very cost prohibitive. And so there's the original creator of Daystar who you knew, correct? Right. Uh, Del Woods was the original founder. He came out of an Air Force laboratory. And no, they didn't make him there, but he worked at a laboratory. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, we have the Indiana Jones craze to say U.S. government is really cool. But uh, <laughs> he, uh, he learned his trade through the, through the Air Force and then left the Air Force and started his own uh, facility. And we're thinking between 71 and 73, uh, it's, it's tough to tell because he was doing a little bit of in the garage kind of work. So that's, that makes it a little difficult to date. But uh, so then he ran the shop until I purchased it with my late husband, Vic Winter, in 2006. Uh, Dell's health was failing and it was time to, you know, pass the torch and boy, were we eager and ready. And so we brought it back home to Missouri where, you know, cost of living and all of the overhead is, is zero because I basically I have a ranch 
35 acres where it's, you know, I, if I want to build a new building, I just get out the backhoe. So and, and you that allowed do. us, yeah, <laughs> zoning. So, uh, so, uh, and then uh, with the help of uh, engineer Fred Brunges, which a lot of people know uh, as having discovered the comet, he writes Eclipse Orchestrator software. Uh, he's now a co-owner. Uh, and so his engineering skills, and if anybody spent any time with Fred, you know that there's like, wow, going on up in there. And so he's really allowed us to continue to level up and level up and, and, and really modernize what was a pretty antiquated product since sure. then, 2006. Uh, so, and we just, you know, you turn your back on us and we're going to think up something new. I know. Every time I talk to you, it's like, look at this. It's like, but uh, it's awesome. Um, now there's a lot of options. There's not a lot of options in the narrow band. Well, there's too of, many options. I on tell me. Let me tell you. There's too yeah, many. there. But there's and it. Um, so there's a, there is a lot of options for uh, amateur astronomers, even professional astronomers, to get involved in narrow band solar astronomy and. First off, real quick, uh, for those watching, do not observe the sun unless you have the proper equipment. And if you don't know what that means, we have two episodes of the What's Up webcast that will beat your head senseless over that and what other filters are available and how they all work. So if but you're you doing the learn... work not to do, that's yes. always good. Yes. Like so over the screen, don't do this. That's all. So go good. learn about it first. Um, but uh, moving on from that, um, there's a lot of options for narrowband solar astronomy. Um, there's front-mounted, there's air-spaced, and then, of course, you guys are the solid uh, Edelon rear-mounted setup. What's the advantages, real quick, since we're limited on time, to something like your system? So the, uh, we feel the advantages of the solid-space solid Edelon are in the capacity to completely regulate it, and that... Um, so you know, what we're talking about is a, a little compartment where a very small piece of optics is in here. If you're front mounted, then you have to have the entire objective, which means that you're, you, you understand when you get an objective lens, it gets expensive based on the size. But if you get a teeny tiny little lens, you know, your, your telescope is gonna come to focus. Then you don't have to have as much uh, control and control is what it's all about. Most people don't really grasp what an angstrom is it's an angstrom is a 10th of a nanometer, which, okay, and let's just say we're talking about quarter wave. Everybody understands your optics are within the accuracy of a quarter wave. Well, an angstrom is in the range of uh, one six thousandth of a wave. And then if you go half an angstrom, which is how wide that band pass might be, then you're, you know, getting into the 12,000th of a wave or, you know, in, in, inside Ridiculously the molecular of the atom, you know, teeny, 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 teeny. So it's all about control because if you change temperature, if if you have different pressures, if you have heat, you know, all these sorts of things affect how well you can control that. And the same way with optics on the front, if you're going to make an objective, you have to have the thickness of the glass or it'll slump. So a million things that can affect your performance at that kind of scale. So we really prefer to um, to have thermal control, which means you set it and forget it and you know it's on. Some of ours even actually give you the actual readout of what the precise wavelength is to a tenth of an angstrom. That's one sixty thousandth of a wave. Anyhow. Yeah. So, so to be that accurate, 
The other really so, cool, cool thing about rear mount that we found over the years is that you get to use your telescope. And I don't know how many of your viewers already own a telescope, but you usually put a lot of love into the selection and the care and the use of your telescope. So if you have dropped all that cash on an astrophysics or uh, I don't know, a Skywatcher 150, you don't know anybody with a Skywatcher 150, do you, Kevin? No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. So so if, if you own your refractor and you love your refractor and you get to know it, then taking that optic off that you labored over and fell in love with and invested heavily into then you know being able to use that telescope with the filter it, it it's a lot more i mean you get ownership in it it belongs to you and then you get familiar with it and it's more comfortable and not only that you get to use really good optics in that mm -hmm. telescope so sure. you don't have to throw it all the old telescope out just keep this one around and you know there's there's really no excuse that's that's about as convenient as 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 an option could be so we can set it and forget it. We know what wavelength we're on. We have incredible control. You can put it on any telescope you have. Oh, and it works in space. So well, that's that's sold. you know. So. You never know. You you never know. Yeah. One day I plan to have my own Hubble, and I just want to make sure that I have well, a. You know, it's come it. up before. We've we've yeah. had we've had missions that flew, and and so that's always handy. For those watching, if you've never done customer service in astronomy, you would be blown away at the questions we get. Try us. So, um, so yeah, that's what's cool about the Daystar filters. I own one. I've had several of them. And they are crazy convenient compared to anything else I've owned. If you've ever had, like, uh, I'm not going to name names because I'm... A, a front mount? An alternate, yeah. If you've had, like, a front-mounted filter let's say it's like a 40 or a 50, you have to get like a custom ring machine to put it on the front. And then if you put that on your big fancy four inch, whatever refractor, now it's a 50 and that's kind of it. Um, or you have a dedicated telescope and that's kind of it. Uh, but as someone who owns a bunch of different refractors, and I know many of us watching have various refractors. Nobody ever sells equipment and gets new no, equipment. That's crazy. Never. It's crazy. Um, um, but you can invest in one of these filters and it you can actually utilize it on different it systems, which is awesome. There's no custom rings unless you're getting really big and you need to talk yeah. to Jen about that. But, um, you know, if you've got something like this guy, this little 62 we make back there, you can just get one of these little filters, pop it on the back and boom, you've got an H-alpha uh, telescope ready to go view the sun. And it's and... cost competitive. Yeah, I mean, if you if you put this into a little 60 millimeter scope, this in the scope is actually cost competitive with a dedicated scope, but you don't just get the 60 scope. You also get whatever other telescopes. You get a 60 scope and a 90 and an 80 and maybe a 125. You can just keep moving it around. Yeah, whatever. So if someone wanted to get started in your lineup of hardware, let's say they have something that's a 150 or smaller, which most people do, um, how would they get started in the Daystar family? Well, we always recommend that you pick up the phone and call us uh, because Tiffany Tiffany loves talking on the phone. She really does. Kevin's grinning because Kevin has been guilty Tiffany's of calling. Tiffany's awesome. <laughs> and she, she, there are a lot of ways that people get confused about configuration or worried about configuration. And she's really awesome at walking you through it. The toll-free is 
866-680-6563. Magic number 6563. Yeah, see what they did so, there. <clears throat> anyhow, so she would really be, I, I just want to shout that out first, or service at daystarfilters.com. Uh, and then, uh, but for any refractor owner, it's really pretty simple. We have, hey, T uh, Tammy, could you go get a UVIR cut filter? Uh, so uh, we, this is Tammy. She works in the lab and has never, nobody ever sees Tammy. She's awesome. Uh, so uh, the UVIR cut filter, what it does is it reflects, reflects is the operative word. It reflects out infrared and ultraviolet. So on this, on this, uh, does my laser pointer work backwards? I don't, I don't think it's bright enough. So there's the ultraviolet and there's the infrared and, and it'll block out that energy that's coming from the outer range. And because it's reflective, then you can just put it up in the back and the rear end of your, you see if it as I wiggle it, you can see the little reflections that are purplish. Well, it, uh, it's otherwise clear. So it isn't gaining any heat. You don't want to put colored glass in a concentrated beam or it'll absorb that energy, heat up, crack, and then you'll have broken glass inside your telescope, which is no fun for anyone. But with a reflective surface, you can reject just, and it goes right out at the zero concentration that it came in. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, do any kind of damage to the inside of your scope. And actually the side of your scope collects more heat than the front objective of your scope because that front objective is clear and it's, you know, it's the size of your hand. So that's about how much energy. And when you put your hand in the sun, it doesn't spontaneously catch on fire. I think a lot of people get that mixed up too, where they're like, oh my God, you're going to burn up your telescope. Burn your telescope. Well, you're, you know, let's remember, that's about how much energy you're putting into your telescope. And yeah. so unless it's concentrated onto something, yes, you can burn ants, but unless it's concentrated on something, then it, it really can't burn anybody. And so when it comes back to the back of the instrument and reflects back out, the angles are reversed and it meets that, encounters that objective at the same zero magnification that it came it in. Right back so out. again, palm of your hand doesn't catch on fire in the sun. So neither will your telescope. Uh, where we get into trouble is when we get uh, maybe a rear element. Uh, and we, you know, you can use them with the rear element, but your rear element is going to come under more like pets fall refractors, uh, for example. Some people go, oh my God, I can't use a pets file. Jen said no pets file. I said, be careful with a pets file. Using that rear mounted UVIR, if he's behind the pets file lens and he's gonna get some concentrated light, well, how much? What's the absorption rate of those coatings? Because if it's clear glass, it's probably not, still not going to absorb any heat. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you, you're, you're talking about a pets file, you probably spent some money on that. And if you spend a lot of money on it and you love it, you can just get a front mount energy rejection filter. And those are more expensive because in the front, that's that's a pupil plane. So we have to have it figured with the same figure that you would uh, any glass element up front. And sure. they get more expensive. We build them custom just because. And we have the, the, the cell size can fit any 10 millimeter option, but then your, your actual glass. So we'll have like, 210 versus 90 and you put them together. And so you have this infinite scalable chart of how many, we just don't keep them in stock. Yeah. We make them to standard. We make them uh, to spec. You go out and you measure your telescope and we'll make it for you. Yeah. So other than that, you know, move it around, have fun. Yeah. So basically 
to break that down is you can take any telescope, probably 150 or below, refractor. at least refractors, um, without any front-mounted filter. Um, you can just get the little UVIR filter, pop that on like your diagonal or whatever's right. going on. Right. Um, and then you take your Daystar filter and pop that on the back of the right. diagonal and you're ready to rock and roll. To the races. Yeah, I would also point out that the front element that's going to take the heat load, you have an itty bitty, this is where you, we put this in the phone, cone of focus. And of course it won't pass a full solar disc on above, I want to say about 550 millimeters. So more than that, it won't squeeze through that hole. That means you're going to have a concentrated disc around this here, which is a little black anodized barlow. But it's going to take a long time before that's going to translate all the way up through here. And it's just going to add a little bit of warmth. It doesn't, I mean, this has to heat anyway. So you have to have, you know, 150 millimeter nuclear heat tracking the sun all day before it really starts to affect the performance of this. And if it does, this little red light, this light here will go yellow instead of green, which outside it's really hard to see yellow versus green, but it would indicate, hey, you're getting too warm, you're running off band, give me a break. That's yeah. it. You're not going to hurt anything. This is not going to light on fire. And we've seen people try. Oh, the things people do with this stuff. Yeah, please don't <laughs> take it apart. <laughs> and please don't take it apart. There's nothing in there that you can service. There is something in there that you can completely destroy, ruin, trash forever. We can't fix it. And we know when you try and open them, we can tell. We have super secret sauce in there. <laughs> it's super well, secret. Yeah, there. Well, I could sit here and talk to Jen all day. It, it would be, and we've done it. We have. Done we have. It. Um, but uh, that's pretty much it for our session. If you want to know more about Daystar filters, uh, head over to their website, give Tiffany a call, you know, ask them questions. Um, there's bye. their hardware. We've got two Tim eclipses says bye coming bye. up. Yes. We've got two eclipses coming up in 2023 and 2024. So now would be the time to start having that conversation if you're serious about it. Um, they've got all that ready to go. Uh, Jen, thanks for hanging out with us. And maybe we'll have you on like one of our big one hour sessions in really? the future. That'll be fun. We, we would need an hour to discuss <laughs> many a Easy. topic. So. Easy. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you all so right. much. Um, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye now. Bye, guys. Uh, stick around for the next session coming right up. See ya.